A nationwide poll of our seven followers on Parler comprehensively demonstrates that the 42 to Doomsday podcast is a 100% effective cure for COVID-19. Over hydroxychloroquine bleach and injecting UV radiation under your skin. With that, how can you not trust anything we say? I'm Rob. I'm Mark. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And Merry Christmas to all our listeners bunkered down in the COVID-19 ravaged Northern Hemisphere. We're broadcasting almost live from our sunny retreat next to a dildo shop as hair dye drips down our faces to help you celebrate Christmas as you contemplate shoving little Timmy in the oven in lieu of roast pork. Buckle up, praise Jesus, and pass the mint sauce because this is the 42 to Doomsday Christmas Special. Rob has a lie down now to recover from that intro. Uh, welcome back, everyone, to our annual Christmas special. Dave, Richard, always a pleasure to have the boys back on the uh, podcast. How are we both? Yeah, good. Happy Hanukkah. The world's returning to normal. Doctor Who's coming back. We're here recording this podcast. What else matters? So two out of three of the track record. <laughs> uh, Rob, welcome back. How are you, sir? You, yeah. You're looking a bit better now. Breathless. <laughs> 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 the, the, the haircut homage to '90s Robbie's being appreciated. Rage Against Machine booming out of the car stereo with the old graphic equalizer. Actually, uh, my mother sent me a whole bunch of photos from when I turned 21, and my in colour, by the way. Yeah, they are in colour. <laughs> F you, mate. <laughs> and uh, I can only aspire to the mullet that I had back then. But anyway. Yeah, no. I'm good. I'm and good. that leather cap. Oh, yeah. You know where the leather cap ended up? Off the back of a bus in Barcelona. Right. Yeah. I was going to say back in the lead singers <laughs> from my said Fred's head. <laughs> so we're, well, we're laughing in the background. We're here to celebrate Christmas or Doctor Who and Christmas or just Doctor Who, really, aren't we? We are indeed. We are yes. Indeed. Plus, so. we had nothing better to do. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's 30 degrees outside, and let's be honest, Doctor Who fans and heat. You know, not gonna, it's not going to end well. So we thought we're coming to a house with great air conditioning and uh, crowd around a couple of microphones. For the fully first time in a year. I know. It's yeah, pretty, yeah, yeah. I know. What, what a year. year. Oh, my God. Apparently yes. something's happened that's pretty major. I don't know. Well, Donald Trump. Trump. This year. Yeah, thank Christ. Well, if you believe Twitter, Jodie Whittaker has been sacked and recast at least three times this year. So. Yeah, well, I wish one of them was right. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. It's dead anyway. So it's great to have both of you back. Mm. To help Thank you very much. And mm. uh, So what's our first topic, Mark? We're going to get Dave to intro this topic because it was his idea. When we were sort of uh, in the midst of lockdown, Dave had this very interesting idea of a podcast. And we thought, yes, we'll, uh, we'll do that. But we were supposed to do it earlier during the year. But of course, lockdowns and everything like that. So now is the time to launch it. So Dave, tell us about the challenge you put forward to us. So basically, my concept was, given that we were all going to be in lockdown for a few weeks... Um, that it seemed a lot longer than that though that's right um, the concept was is we were all going to be in lockdown for a few weeks let's nominate our favourite Doctor Who stories let's all watch each other's favourite Doctor Who stories and then we'll gather and discuss them you know why they're our favourites and any any themes or any things in common that they might have now it turns out that lockdown lasted for <laughs> eight months and so it was Christmas before we could have the conversation thank you Chairman Dan but, uh, um, but yeah look it's just so, 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 so I guess to make the serious point, one of the things that I've found with my Doctor Who watching over many years is that there are stories I 
pull out and watch because I'm checking to see if they're as bad as I remember they are or I haven't seen them for a long time or they're one that sort of, you know, might come out for an obscure reason. But very rarely do I go and reach for the, the, the real classics. I sort of have the feeling, look, I know that story's great, I don't need to watch it again. Mm. And this was a good excuse to actually watch them and remind myself how good some Doctor Who is. Absolutely right. So the first one was uh, Dave's choice, which was uh, the Silurians, or should I say Doctor Who and the Silurians. Ooh. Are you a true fan, mate? Are you from 1963 to 1989 and bits of the... Yes, so talk about the Silurians. So Dave, do you want to kick it off? With, now this is your, one of your favourite stories. It, 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 it is it, your favourite story. It is my favourite story all time. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think that there is some great stuff in the Silurians, and I think that there are a lot of things here that are in common with most of the stories we've picked. But it has got a plot that is slightly more complicated than normal in that there are twists, there are turns, there are things that change. Where the plot is going in episode six is far different to where it starts in episode one, for Mm. example. It's got a classic TARDIS team. Um, You've got Pertwee really sort of getting into the stride of it now. Lee Shaw, who I think is a great underrated companion. And you've got that really early Brigadier who's just absolutely mastering it and nailing it all. Other really good characters. You look at what Malcolm Holt has written in terms of people like... um, Dr. Quinn, Dr. Mm. Lawrence, um, even Major Baker, you know, who gets a real sort of sense of this being a real person. It's gritty. It's it's quite nasty. It's layered, isn't it? It's, it's layered. Also, yeah, it's and nice, it's got yeah. a really cool monster, which every classic Doctor Who story should have. Mm. Um, we'll see if that's something that holds up across your picks. But I, I just, this is a story, I can watch it from one episode to the end without any issues and I could go back and watch it again straight away there, there's that much in it I love it did you watch it in one slog or one, seat, uh, one sitting not like me in a cinema watching Power of the Daleks animation did you watch it or how did you break it up uh, I, I broke it up but only because of the the, the, react, you know, the practicalities of yeah, time not yeah, because yeah. I w- couldn't watch it end to end it's just yeah. you know there aren't that many hours in the day no yeah I sort of watched it over um, you know two episodes every couple of days while I was uh, you know on hiatus job wise uh, a few times this year just to be honest with you uh, I, I enjoyed it but I must admit this is when it was early lockdown so it was a bit of a I don't think my mindset was sort of um, I kept thinking of the lab scenes I'm going I wonder if they're in that lab they're working on the cure now are they working on the same thing in <laughs> Queensland University and Pfizer how are they going there I sort of kept reaching back to that but um, yeah I thought um it's a bit like me watching, you know, when the first lockdown happened, I watched Threads for some reason. No, and, what oh, 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 yeah, and I just thought, yeah, I just... <laughs> I was a bit dark that day. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> well, I, I watched two episodes of Survivors, and that was, that oh, was all I could take. Go. Yeah, but now there's a thing. It was yeah. all China's fault, apparently. From China. <laughs> uh, very good story, and as you said, those characters are great. I love Malcolm's Hulk stuff, is just really, you know, it actually improves a lot. And maybe it's because we're all getting older and we can appreciate more of it but uh, yeah it was a very good choice but I had to watch two episodes a day and, and I was, I was quite actually a lot of these picks that I found were very claustrophobic it was probably because we were stuck at home we couldn't go out but um, yeah it was a good, good pick if I could sort of mention the, the kazoo music the, the kazoo music well the, what is it the, the <laughs> spirit uh, Serpentophone or something. Yeah, it's it's some you know old ancient instrument that they were trying to get like the vibe on, but yeah, it's kazoo. Um, the moment when Pertwee goes to visit Doctor Quinn, Quinn thinks he's got away with it, and then Pertwee just sort of looks in through the kitchen window and just waves at him. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that to me, that to me is the moment Pertwee arrives as the Doctor. Right. Uh, the moment where the reasonable old Solarian is killed by the aggressive young Solarian yeah, yeah. and, and the whole story then just takes a whole different direction I think mm. that is a really good summary of the story and the scenes in Waterloo Station look it's been mentioned yeah. many many times mm. but 
that is probably as real and gritty and bleak yeah. as who gets yeah. uh, outside of the Hartnell era anyway yeah not going to go for Peter Miles uh, sort of crescendo is he <laughs> <laughs> look only Peter Miles could do that performance yeah. yeah well I think he did say he just had to keep going up because there was nowhere else to go so <laughs> and he did yeah, yeah he did but, yeah those scenes actually when the people at the train station and, and masters are sort of sliding down you know that expression on his face you know covered in not Rice Krispies this time around, but uh, yeah, it was uh, like I'm thinking, oh yeah, when COVID and everything like that was uh, probably an interesting choice to watch while it was all sort of uh, happening in those early stages. Uh, those 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 you know end of the world sort of disaster scenes, uh, they have they, they come across they feel more real. I, mm. I think because of the way that they're, they're, they're filmed and shot, it, it, they have that seventies feel, Grittiness, just yeah. unvarnished. I mean, if you if you contrast that say with the, the remake of Survivors from about like, 10 years ago yeah that was just a gloss fest it, yeah. it, it didn't feel like it gripped you by the throat that the fact that humanity was you know cacking it as we should but you go back to say the Silurians or later on with say Survivors the 70s just has that unvarnished feel of this is the truth this is humanity on the brink um, and I find that they're the, probably the, the strongest that, that thread is the strongest yeah. element of the Silurians for me sorry Doctor Who and the Silurians yeah, yeah. and don't say threads please I'm still trying to get over it why, there's a whole podcast why, why, why threads because as I said I have watched threads in the last few years and that is it, it is unremittingly bleak that scene um, where the old woman is showing those kids that TV educational yeah, program yes. which I think I remember seeing from you know, yeah. that that has always remained with me it is horrifying yeah, how, yeah. And, and you know the whole theme of the shit is the, the threads that bind society together are extremely fragile and you've got these kids who are just staring, you know, blank faced at the scrap. What the hell does this mean? Mm. It, it'll, it'll just really mm. fall apart. Well, sorry. Well, and, and just to continue on that point that you make there about sort of the overproduced nature of these things, mm. I, I got through about two thirds of RTD's Years and Years, I think at the start of this year, I watched oh, that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you're right. Look, there is some very good stuff in that. RTD is a great writer. Um, mm. I gave up after he killed the character that I actually related to. I was like, well, no, I'm, I'm out of this now. Um, but. It did feel very overproduced. Like, this is how you need to feel now. This is what we're doing. It's all very gla- gloss. It's all very glam. I compare that to the end of part five of Silurians, which, which is a cliffhanger we've discussed before privately, where Major Baker dies of the disease. The Doctor and the Brigham pull up. Is he dead? Yes. Yep. The first one. Cut to credits. Yeah. No music. No amazing direction. Just, yeah, he's dead. He's dead. And yep. this is... This is the first one there's going to be a lot more yeah. completely straight mm. as I say no no, no production mm. no, no glossy production and that feels a lot more real than something like Years and Years with just all of its you know Murray Gold music yeah. and, and, and high class production I think it, it yeah. does work yeah and constantly cutting back to media fake news reports and about this is what's happening this is what's happening and everything like that yeah I found yeah. it quite what, what, what's the storytelling crutch that RTD relies on that he comes back to again and again because you saw that sort of in Doctor Who with the mm. Yeah, and, yeah, and the Solurian's version of it is, again, very, very simple, where the Brigadier gets off the phone, he says to Liz Shaw, the first one in Paris, and she says, well, if we can't control it in the UK, what chances the world has? That's all it is. Mm-hmm. And you, you don't need to cut to five different media stations across the world saying we're all in trouble. Yeah. It's just a really simple thing, and Nick Courtney carries that moment. Well, and that's, that's why... And people watching then would believe that because of the believability of the characters and the performances of Courtney... And, and Caroline John, you know, you, you sort of you, you identify, you're meant to identify with these characters, and they're saying it's beginning, and you, you feel that, you yep. feel that. But yeah, threads. 
you crazy bastard. <laughs> it was Family Movie Night. Was that like that or Police Academy 3? I couldn't decide. So yeah. that's what Bit of Bobcat Goldthwait versus Threads. So yeah, Threads won out. But yes, it was... Um, yeah, it was... Harry and you. Your kids still getting therapy, are they? Well, you put, no more than normal, yes. Yeah, I remember so. we watched that for school. And oh my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it was just about year 11, probably, I think, when it was on. And it was just sort of, oh, my God. You know, and the next yeah. day we, we tried to have the discussion about it. But I think one was just too sort of traumatised. <laughs> did, uh, did they make you watch The Day After? Oh, I remember The Day um, After. Yeah. I remember watching The Day I, After. I, I, I mean, I've seen I don't think we watched it at school. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. I, I do remember watching three because I remember the notes coming home and saying, you know, it's really controversial, but look, the kids should watch it because it's part of an important mm. part of, you know, what we're going to talk yeah. about mm. at school and whatever. But yeah, it was. Next day, we, as I said, we went in to have the discussion and everybody yeah, was just sort of sitting there. Just <laughs> the, the <laughs> all 80s sort of curled up in a fetal ball. For, just the, for the young people out there, the 80s Cold War was really bleak. It was. Oh. No, I was, I was about to say we need to keep moving. So yeah. speak, speaking of bleak stories with a cool new monster, uh, Rob, I think you've got the next one. Thank you very much. And it's not the horror of Fang Rock either. Boom. No, yeah. right. Now, what I happened actually there? was going to choose the horror of Fang Rock for mine, and I thought that's what you were going to go with and that you'd probably shoot me if I sort of <laughs> took it. So I left it alone. So I'm amazed no one picked it up. Um, look, I would have, but I mean, I've talked on it. No, it's no. Good, I know it is great. It is great, but let's, let's, variety is the spice of life. So I've gone with the arc in space. Uh, there's a theme developing here, I think, but we'll get back to that later. Look, I mean, what can you say about the arc in space that hasn't already been said? But I'll, I'll, I'll try to retread. I mean, it is the. It's remarkable that this is Tom Baker's second story because he's absolutely he's, he owns the role mm. as the Doctor. I mean, he, he dominates the screen. He dominates the story. Um, I love this story because. It has, I mean, I, I like reading horror, I like watching horror. Um, it has all those elements of, you know, classic horror. It's a, it's, a, it's a remote location, it's a claustrophobic setting. There's a whole bunch of people who you can sympathise with who end up being food for the monsters. Um, the, the horror itself, the body horror, I mean, it, you know, you could argue that it's, a, it's an analogue for cancer or some nonsense like that, but it's just, you know, your humanity is being devoured from the inside out by these rapacious monsters that are uh, happy to use you to you know, carry, off, carry on and, and, and further their conquest of the human species. It's just great. I mean, the sterility of the uh, of the arc set set against the sort of the body horror that is, you know, threatening to envelop everyone. Noah's, you know, realization, you know, that that classic scene at the end of I think it's episode two, where you know he, he reveals his hand. I mean, back in the seventies, you know, it scared the shit out of me just to see that. You know, I mean, we all know it's bubble wrap on his hand and it loses a little bit of impact, but. What the way his performance conveys it exactly yeah, yeah, is, is, is perfectly brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's just wonderful. I mean, they, they make good use of the characters with Harry and, and Sarah Jane. And I was saying before that the, the episode, sorry, the story is is a claustrophobic horror. I mean, that that's the the, the the sequences where she is trying to get through that tunnel with that cable, and the, the sheer despair when she sort of realizes that she's you know trapped or stuck. And, and, and what may face her. That's a really wonderful piece of um, acting from Liz Sladen. So, um, look, all round, the performances are great. Yeah, this, the costumes of the wearing are slightly limited, but, you know, that doesn't really matter. But, you know, you just got to realise that Robert Holmes uh, has created this wonderful story uh, as a, you know, a, a sort of a proper introduction for Tom Baker. His performance is on, 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 on key. Uh, Harry is great. I just love it. It's just fantastic. And the tonal shift between robot and arc in space mm. is completely 
You th- th- this is really the first Tom Baker story. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, you, exactly you couldn't it. see the previous production team doing this. No, no. no it's, this is Holmes and, and Hinchcliffe unleashed, as it were. Yeah. This and is how we're going to set it out. And they change gear overnight, yeah. flip on a dime. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. And it's yeah, um, yeah. Still to stay, it's brilliant. Yeah. Can I say? I would have seen this on one of the many repeats that I'd had when I was a kid. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things, you know, we look at that now, and I'm sure you guys would not let your, your seven-year-olds watch this um, in the way that we did at 6 o'clock on the ABC, <laughs> just on a weeknight. But I can remember not really getting it when I was that age, but being terrified of it, particularly part three. And I can remember that stuff where they're in the, um, in, in the cryogenic chamber. Mm. And it, it sort of felt like every time they opened a door, there was another weir in there, or there was a yes. larvae there, or yep. there was something there. And just yeah. they, they couldn't escape because there was just a monster to there and that terror that it, it wasn't just going to zap you it was going to like change you mm. and as you get older and particularly as you become a teenager and suddenly you watch those scenes with Noah half transformed which was one of the very few actual cuts that Hinchcliffe went back and made which is why there's that really weird jump cut in that, yeah. that scene yeah that that once you realize what's going on there that is terrifying mm-hmm. And it's just the anticipation of, as you said before, you know, the woman comes out of the cupboard like that. What? That's what what's next? You know, what's next? Yeah. What's next? That, that's actually my earliest Doctor Who memory, Is I it? think. Yeah, because okay. when, when they showed it here, that was on the Sunday afternoon, so we're going way back now, so we're in the mid-70s. Okay, yeah. yeah. It wasn't mid-50s, no. <laughs> not, not quite. And I think but, the way I can space, you know, prefigures a lot of body horror or science fiction body horror movies. I mean, obviously the classic example is the thing from 82, you know, John mm. Carpenter's the, the, the thing. Um, it's the story uh, and it's real. It's just ahead of its time, really. Um, yeah. Is this everybody's favourite story out of season 12? Was it still Genesis? Probably, or? yes. It's, it's kind of hard to go. Oh, look, if I was picking it probably just on performances, you'd probably have to go Michael Wisher as Davros. I think probably maybe mm-hmm. pushes Genesis up, up an extra notch. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I have to say, Ark in Space would be a very close second, though. In, in terms of which one would I most be able to just put on yeah. and after 90 minutes find I've watched the whole thing without yeah. even blinking, yeah. it's Ark in Space. Well, yeah. that's because Genesis is two episodes longer, but... <laughs> Even so, I think that I I would need a break watching Genesis. I, I have a couple of times, and I've, I've said before when I bought the new DVD of The Ark in Space, when I got the Blu-ray of The Ark in Space, and you sit down, you make dinner, you go, oh, I'll watch an episode of The Ark in Space while I'm eating dinner, and then suddenly part four's just finished. He yeah. dinner's still not eaten. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, yeah, sir. I'll just watch another one. I'll just watch. It, yeah. it, it, it is right up there it's in terms of, those, of just, yeah. just watching Doctor Who. Yeah. It's, all about binge, it's binge-worthy, isn't it? Oh, really? absolutely. Yeah, it's one of those binge-worthy Doctor Who's, yeah. I think, uh, I mean, for, as I said, for expediency, Ark in Space is the best out of that season, but um, yeah, I think Genesis comes second for me. But, um, yeah, I, I do like it. Yeah, it's very good. So, Mark, you picked two stories, and I've watched both of them because you changed your mind at the last moment, which is fine. It gives us five <laughs> stories to chat about um, and, and a bit more variety given what the next couple of picks are going to be, to be honest. Um, but the story that you uh, changed your pick to at the last moment, it comes next, and it is... Revenge of the Cybermen. Now, tonally, it's completely different from what the stories we've chosen here in terms of lockdown and that, but I must admit, after watching most of these, I was feeling a little bit... Uh, what's the word? Overwhelmed? <laughs> Suicidal? <laughs> <laughs> I, needed some, I needed some respite from basically the bare-buckled nature of some of the above stories, to be perfectly honest with you. So I needed a bit of um, comfort Doctor Who watching. And usually, usually with Doctor Who, if I will go for a comfort sort of you know story, is usually Death of the Daleks or Revenge of the Cybermen. Yeah. Now, I'd seen Death of the Daleks a few months beforehand, so I thought, I'll put on Revenge of the Cybermen. And you know what? It's... It has a bad reputation, which I don't understand completely why, because 
I mean, look, if you compare it to, to sub one stories, obviously it's sub low. And if you compare it with season 12, it's entirety. Yes, it's. Although I prefer Revenge of the Cybermen to the Sontaran experiment, you know, any day. But I think this is ideal Doctor Who, and I use it popcorn watching. So basically, it's Doctor Who, you switch your brain off, you just sort of go with the flow and watch it. It's not taxing. And I think, in terms of having that tonal shift and a bit of respite from what the. You know the the thread sort of versions of Doctor Who you all guys chose. Um, it doesn't you know it doesn't tax the brain. And my son sat down and watched it with me as well, which he hasn't done in years. Like I've tried to engage him in you know some of the new series and the Mother Doctor Who. Lured him to the. <laughs> no, he still hates it, but he actually sat down and watched it. So plus, so, yeah, no, two or three. In response to what you said there, Mark, I will say I watched this as well. I was very happy watching it. Mm. It is a very enjoyable story. It it is not as light and fluffy as its reputation suggests. We'll, we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. But you ask why it's not. <laughs> As well regarded. Mm-hmm. Um, let me let me explain why. Let me let me let me explain. Oh, Tim, she's Catherine Brenda. This girl's husband played us. That's 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 why. So I didn't know Tom Hardy was in it. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched the the, the Batman film with, uh, we were going through that was as well. And Bane was there. And I thought Tom Hardy's from Vogue. I will sing Revenge's praises, but. Some of those Vogon performances, particularly Tyrone, and look, I love Kevin Stoney. Yeah. But something's not working in that performance. Yeah, it's the mask, I think so. Yeah. No, I, look, I think there is some very effective stuff. The first episode, I think, where they're sort of creeping around inside the station, yes, yes. I think uh, maybe, maybe the sort of manacles aside, but um, I, I think the first episode is quite effective. There is some very good stuff when they're in the caves. And, and I have to say that we, um, on the Blake 7 podcast, we did sort of big Michael E. Bryan up. Um, really for his for his work on Blake 7 yeah. um, and I have to say the stuff particularly when he's down in Wookie Hole oh Goody um, Hole yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, that is really well shot there yes. is because he makes some really good use of the camera angles and, and the um, layout of the case oh, I think he gets some really effective stuff in there and yeah fun, funnily enough actually again that was a story I saw very early on probably before I really became a fan of the series and the stuff I do remember is the stuff of the Cybermen sort of stomping around in the caves um, and, and you talk about Michael Bryan's direction I think it is very very good here and even some of those early stories where um, the way that they just gently sell that you know there's been a massacre of about 80 people which is it's very very dark and very very bleak but they don't let it overwhelm the story and the fact that when you know you see one of the crew members get infected in inverted commas in front of them the first thing the action of the crew is actually they're just going to shoot him yeah, yeah, and, and, and right. even the stuff with Warner leaving up to that, where you genu- genuinely believe that Warner is just done, he's just spent. Mm. Um, that, that bit where he's sort of like having to fudge it with that, that cruiser that goes past, like, yeah, it's pretty bad. It, it's just very, very undersold, but it's not the warm and lovely, happy thing that people sort of remember just because the cyber leader occasionally is a little bit... Um, Can? Yes. Hands on hips. A bit Kenneth Williams, maybe. Uh, I think, yeah, I mean... People go, look, Horns and Norman is the ideal Doctor Who story to watch when you just want fun. But I always find like Horns and Norman is like a bit like Spinal Tap, really. So turned up to 11. Where I think, you know, Revenge of the Cybermen is, is it's, those, it's, it's a very big nostalgia fest for me because it was one of the very first Doctor Who, obviously, on VHS. I did yeah. borrow it a lot from the shop. I watched it a lot of the time, so I think. And, and let's face it, it was on pretty high rotation on the ABC. It was well, actually so. as well, and it looked great on Blu-ray as well. So comfort Doctor Who wise, after the sort of bleakness of all the thread entries you guys chose for us, um, was a, was a, a nice contrast for me. And, and look, I get why the Cybermen get a bit of a knocking here because of a few of those sort of hands on hips moments. But two Cybermen beam down to Voga mm. and wipe out half the planet. Mm. Like they're actually a very effective. 
yes. monster in yes. this. Like, not, they're not they're not easily defeated at all. No, exactly right. And it's still way way better than Death in Heaven. So you know, well, enough yeah, said. Yeah, is, yes. Enough said, really. So uh, yes. Yeah, and the uh, the next choice, I believe, was uh, Young Richard, who went for drum roll. Well, I actually also went for a couple. We, we talked about horror Fang Rock. Um, I was also very tempted to go for Talons of Wing Cheyenne just to be controversial. Uh, <laughs> Hang on. It says a lot about where fandom is that actually saying that engenders contra- controversy. Yeah. It's just a good story. Look, Don't worry about the nonsense of the work people talk about people. No, I was just going to say, look, I watched it and I enjoyed it. There are snowflakes. Come and get me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, I can oh, see... Shots it. fired. <laughs> the talons D- of Wing Dare I say one of us is yellow. <laughs> And not the song by Coldplay. So, admittedly, the jaundice is playing up at that. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I can see its flaws. There is some what you might call casual racism stuff in it, I think, that that, clearly would be totally unacceptable now and that I'd actually forgotten. But um, I think it's still a crackingly good story. Um, And if you take it as sort of a pastiche of that sort of, you know, Satchroma Fu Manju stuff, Mm. um, I think it works brilliantly well. So, look, sorry. Cop, <laughs> yeah, cop, cop that woke. Um, no, I actually went. We're gonna get cancelled out again. Yeah, the point I was actually going to make was really about um, telling the wench I am was if you can't be objective about forty fifty old TV, you shouldn't be watching it. So yeah, stick that in your pocket. Um, no, the story. Yep. Yeah, the, no, the story I actually went for was Pyramids of Mars. Mm-hmm. Mm, so get another Hinchcliffe. Um, another Robert Holmes. Yes, and indeed another Robert Holmes. Allegedly. And Tom Baker. <laughs> yes. Um, so the reason I chose it, we, we did say favourite, and look, I think I've mentioned this before, but Pyramids of Mars probably was the story that really turned me into a fan, I think, from, from a viewer. Um, and it was probably the stuff, I think, in episodes one and two, which was just really just blew me away as a kid. Um, look... Yes, it's a Hinchcliffe, and yes, we've talked before about Hinchcliffe has a very definite sort of style and tone and that sort of stuff, but what a tone. And yes, there are plot holes in this that you can, you know, drive a truck through, but the thing with it is the production is really first rate. The cast are really getting into it. They are all taking this 100% seriously. Um, It is quite grim in its outlook. I mean, you sort of get to the point um, in episode three where the Doctor really is out of options. Basically, he's had a couple of goes at trying to stop Sutek and he's sort of been stymied each time. So all he has left now is, is actually to travel to the Sutek knowing full well he's probably going to get killed mm. um, and, and face Sutek. Now, yes, you can then say he um, unleashes a hitherto unknown ability um, to, to get out of the situation, but um, even the stuff in the pyramid is quite... At the end, is quite you know is really quite bleak as well because there is that moment where it looks like Sutex won. He has actually smashed the device and he's free. Mm. Um, and you're sort of like, well, okay, now what the hell are you going to do? Um, yeah, I love it as a story. Um, look, on the negative side, you do have, and again, it's probably a Hinchcliffe and potentially even a Robert Holmes thing. I think where the only female character is Sarah Jane, um, but. I love Pyramids of Mars and I was more than happy to watch it again. It was absolutely a one that was on high rotation. We had it recorded off here when mm. I was a kid and it would just be one that would be pulled out again and again. It it captures the imagination in the way the Doctor mm. absolutely should and just as you think that they've got nothing else to do and the Doctor has run out of options, he then goes to Egypt mm. and then he goes to Mars. There, there yep. is that change in, in the plot. 
Um, but Richard, you talked about the cast absolutely throwing themselves into this, and yeah. you look at the death scenes. I mean, yeah. Namin yeah. is one that everybody sort of remembers. It's one of the classic cliffhangers. Mm. Um, but Michael Sheed, when he yeah. encounters his, you know. Marcus, yeah. your hands. Yes. Um, and, and, and he really does convey that that chap, you know, who still can't just can't quite come to terms with the fact that his brother's been, you know, the, what his brother's become. Yeah, it, it feels like a real human yep. conflict there. Um, but the one that I don't think gets the attention it should is Doctor Warlock. Oh, Warlock. Yeah, because yeah. when he is killed, he absolutely shits himself. Yeah, he does. Um, and you have to say, for a, a villain that spends the entire episode sitting on a throne. Um, yep. with, with a hand, clearly, but uh, <laughs> um, he is an awesome villain. Yes, the voice is amazing. Isn't yeah, it, it is. It's yeah. an amazing vocal performance. It is absolutely. Yeah. Gabrielle Wolf. 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 Yeah, I actually really enjoyed. I thought the direction actually was really good too. Um, mm. Patty Russell's very underrated. I think well, with the four stories she's done, I mean they're all pretty. She was sort of one of the few, I think, who could sort of control Tom Baker, I think, and get it, get him to do what she wanted. Yes, and he, he would make a real ass of himself on the, on the set, and then mm-hmm. he would call her sir and general and salute her and yeah. stuff, which was incredibly unprofessional, yeah. but he still did what he was told. Yes. Yeah, yeah. it was um, very well directed, and, and the scenes, you know, the way it was shot, I was thinking of it going, this reminds me a bit of the, of the Three Doctors in terms of way, like the, some of the scenery around, you got the big house and everything like that. Out. I was just going to say, but without some of the campery, imagine if Paddy had directed the three doctors and what offers have a very different result. But um, I only think part four falls part of it with, uh, with the death of the Daleks homage, doesn't it really? It, it does. And look, I guess yeah. there is no? That, no? that sort of no? discussion point around, you know, that sort of Hinchcliffe last episode syndrome perhaps. But even that, I think, is... I, well I don't have a problem with it and again as I say when I was a kid particularly mm. that again was just a whole new world to capture my imagination and the stuff with the two guardians and the puzzle and <laughs> then, then the, again like it seems a little bit simplistic now Decatron Crucible <laughs> but, but as a kid you know you absolutely bought into that and then yeah the moment where Sutek succeeds in blowing up the Eye of Harmony and it's got all that cool sort of CSO effect going around it mm. and I can remember the first time I watched this being 7, 8 or 6 whatever I was and watching Sutek come down that time tunnel thinking how does he get out of this? Mm-hmm. How good. does he get out of this? It's good that time tunnel doesn't And it? the time tunnel looks good it's like so I, mean, good. I was, so I was actually going to say I can remember as a kid the intriguing imagery of the Egyptian sarcophagus mm captures the imagination a bit mm. and then when it disappears you've got that really cool time tunnel effect that's doc- like that is Doctor Who yeah. that is what Doctor yeah. Who is about as a kid yeah apart from being really really good and the, the Tom scenes obviously with Sutek and the Doctor goes I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a traveller and you contrast that to say 10 or 15 years later Colin Baker's going I'm known as the Doctor it's all, anyway it's um, yeah <laughs> Anyway, or David Tennant's ego. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> yeah. David Tennant's ego is a separate character in a lot of stuff, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it, it, it has its own award. Pyramids of Mars, it's good. Yeah. That yeah. end. Rob, your thoughts on Pyramids of well, Mars? Well, my thoughts echo everyone else's. I, I tend to agree with Dave that the, the ending isn't as weak as some people say that the Hinchcliffe Holmes era is capable of. I I loved this when I was a kid. It was again, it was it was scary. Uh, Sarah Jane is very strong. The Doctor, you know, commands the screen. Sutek is is. You know, one of the most compelling and chilling villains that you will ever see on the show, and it's amazing what you can get out of effectively a, a, a you know a man in a mask 
and, and a voice performance. You know, it, it's it's well, it's up there. Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was going to say it's a Darth Vader-like performance, yeah. though, isn't it? I mean, it's it's, it's, it's yeah. really chilling. I, I love it. I, I can come back to that. Come back to it again and again. Yeah. And, and once again, watching it again for the podcast, it was very yeah. very easy just yeah. watching yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. easy. Yeah. What what would you say about horror of Fang Rock? Everyone's sick, sick to death of me ranting. About I love. Horror. I absolutely love horror of Fang Rock. It is probably in my top. Certainly, top five Ooh. stories of the entire series. I absolutely, I, I adore horror films. It's another, story. and it's another bleak story, isn't it? I mean, it's it is one of the most bleak. In Everybody dies. I think it is probably the ultimate base under siege story. I think really. And um, not only does everybody die in horror of Frank Rock, but nobody's particularly likable, with no. the possible exception of young Vince. Yeah. Mm. You know, everybody else is greedy, avaricious, self-centered. Yep. Um, out of touch, like everybody else has got a fault of some sort, arrogant. Um, I, I think Vince is the one sort of you know innocent character in there, and he gets a very nasty death. Secretly, I think he's lusting after Layla. So. <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think that's a secret. I think, <laughs> I, I think that's pretty clear on screen. But you know, the the moment when Skin Sale basically dies because he's scrambling around trying to get the diamonds off the yeah, off the yeah. off the stairs. He's meant to be one of our like good guys, yeah. And and even he's just an avaricious, selfish bastard. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I used to love horror frame rock until Rob kept going on about it so much. <laughs> oh, no, you're joking. It is Rob. It is awesome. <laughs> so to talk about the fifth story we discussed before we look back at so the uh, the themes of our our picks. Mark, your original pick that I know I certainly watched. I think a few of us yes, also did. I did was. Caves of Andrazani, uh, yay the faithful, yay faithful. So Rob goes on about horror fan rock. I probably gone about caves too much. The best Blake Seven episode that was never made. Uh, <laughs> let's be honest. Um, what's there to be said, really? It's um, you know, it, it, one unremittingly bleak. I must admit, it was very bleak. <laughs> Again, bleak. Why didn't I go for enlightenment? But anyway, because um, this is better. It, it is better. It is better in so many ways. It is actually the. Complete contrast to all the Davison era, especially around the direction of it. It is actually directed with energy, and I really shudder to think if somebody like Peter Moffat got their hands on it uh, from a directorial point of view, it would have been an absolute, completely different thing. But um, the story is fairly intriguing. But uh, as the again, like Pyramids of Mars, everybody's selling it. Everybody's mm. apart from the magma creature, but everybody is invested in it really high cast um, you know really good performances really sort of you know and, and, uh, and the action sequences are fantastic and the, the cliffhangers you know, part, you know the part three cliffhanger where nothing's going to stop me now but not like Zaroff um, <laughs> you know heading towards the planet uh, one of the best cliffhangers ever really and uh, it's just a shame after part four we all went to um, slight poo really in contrast to the other stories we've discussed we've discussed this wasn't aired on the ABC a lot. In fact, fa- famously, when season 21 was first broadcast here, they went from Planet of Fire to a repeat of The Ledger Hive in season yes. 18 because the censors still hadn't worked out what the hell they were going to do with this story. Well, transportation issues. And uh, it, 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 was, it was then eventually shown in the heavily edited version down ten here minutes, with, without 10 minutes cut out of the whole yeah. thing. It was really three and a half episodes. It uh, was by the time they finished it. Part, part yes. four is real. There is a yeah. massive jump in part four. Yeah, and didn't get a, a repeat screening here for a long time. So yeah. This wasn't part of my childhood. I can remember watching it when I was about four, and it's just a few sort of very grim images, mm. but this was one I really discovered as an adult, and I haven't watched a lot of because it's one that really does fall in that category of just, 
I know Caves is a very good Davison. I'll go watch Frontiers. I'll go watch yes, Enlightenment. Means, you know, I'll yeah. go watch something else that I might yeah. might get something else out of. It's not comfort food. It's not comfort watching. It's no, not. But no. I was surprised at just how well this actually did stand up, and it is the performances and just some very unusual decisions. Um, the way that Morgus talks to the camera. Mm. That's that's unheard of in Doctor Who and very, very different. The scene where Stott says goodbye to Kroper, yeah. then just turns around and kills yeah. them all. That doesn't happen in Doctor Who. No. And it's... I would not like Doctor Who to be like that on a regular basis. No. But having it in here, particularly to make it really feel as though the Davison Doctor is just swamped and on the way out, works mm. very, very effectively. It's Doctor Who meets a Sweeney, isn't it, in some cases? Like, it's very, very hard-hitting, isn't it? Mm. Especially the scene where he's got um, Kralpa over the cliff. Well, it's really a bit of a, you know, bit of a ledge, really. You know, and say, bite it, bite it. Yeah, yeah, It's, it's quite harrowing, isn't it? And, and interestingly, I know a few of us have said that uh, Frontios and Caves are Davison's two best performances mm. and two best written performances. Mm. They are both written by writers in Bid, Meet and Holmes who didn't really know a lot about The Fifth Doctor and have both said they basically just wrote Tom Baker mm. and let Peter Davison do what he wanted with it. Yeah. And Davison doing Tom is such a good uh, com- combination yeah. Yeah. compared to people writing for what the Davison Doctor was sort of perceived to be and Davison trying to get something out of it but often not, you know, being written very sort of fan, very weak and very drab and, and, you know, not successful. Giving him Tom Baker-esque lines where he's very witty, he's very biting and letting Davison do that but in his own style, it's such a shame that there wasn't more of that because Bidman Holmes nailed his Doctor. If they actually took the advice of Terence Dix and said, just write it as a Doctor, mm. it would have been a completely different... Um you know, a different uh, time in, in an era, isn't it? Really? It's, it's interesting. I mean, this is really lightning in the bottle for not only for Davison's era, but for the show itself. I mean, you, you see the next season that Saban tries to pick up the same sort of ideas, mm. and mercenaries, or whatever. But it's you know the performances and the writing and the direction really make this that you you, you can't necessarily replicate, even though you're trying. Yeah, that's right. But again, it was probably you know. It, Given the stories we've all been watching, again, fairly, you know, bleak and everything like that. But, uh, yeah, it was good to watch it again. But, um, yeah. Did Richard have comments? Oh, hold on. Richard, over the air. I already said I thought it was really good, so... That's the level of insight we've come to expect, really. No. <laughs> 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 Wow! Yeah. So yeah. His gloves are off. Yeah. Sorry, it was there. Yeah, it was. No, it was. <laughs> um, all right. Well, yeah. Look, I probably don't have much to add. I think that hasn't already been said. Again, I really, really enjoyed it. But it wasn't the watch case. And actually, I'm sorry, it was so long because I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, it's not something you could watch all the time. No. But um, no, I, I thought it was really well done. I was going to say anything about caves. I'd love to see the Australian part four again. Just to see, uh, have you got a copy? Or mine actually? I reckon we'll do should do a direct a commentary on that. A call out to Cliff Chapman and all the people doing the Blu-rays. If you want to, they could include it on the season twenty one. This they could actually just, just yes. to demonstrate what Australia had to put up with. Yeah, yep. yeah. So, so just just to explain what it was like. I mean, there, there are lots of cuts all the way through the story, but hmm. in the final scene, uh, basically the moment where. Uh, Morgus burst into Jack's lair. Yeah. It then cuts to the very last scene where everything's on fire and everyone's dead. Uh, yes, and literally. The comes into great peril. Yeah, li- li- yeah. yeah, literally everything between that that the, that, that entire last the confrontation. Jack no, so you get to the bit where it, it's the bit where 
Jack pulls his mask off. Yes. I think, and that's where it cuts. So he does a, uh, you know, you. He's thinking off of Morgan's yeah, yeah, yeah. thinking me bullets that stop me or whatever. And then the next thing is, yeah, the whole room's on fire and the doctor comes in and grabs Paris. So and did, did, we, did, did we see Jack's face at all? Or was that cut? My memory is it was cut. Yeah, that's mine. Um, I, as I said, I do have a copy of it, so yeah. I can well, go and have a look. Yeah, I reckon we should uh, dig that out. But, but certainly all the stuff where they're all shooting each other and stuff, that, yeah, that, 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 that's all gone. Yeah. I suppose you have the bit where Jack puts Morgus's head through the, the cutting machine or whatever it is. Whatever that thing is, yes. Mm. Yeah, so... Anyway, nice. Or, or yeah, the bit where the general's, like, strangled or... Yeah. Well, he gets caught in the mudslide, doesn't he? Oh, I can't caught in the mudslide? Yeah, because yeah, they, yeah, they, they shut the door yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. like banging on the door or whatever. Let me in! Let, oh! <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So, to move the discussion to sort of a more general thematic discussion via caves. Mm. Every other story that we've looked at so far, we've got Silurians, Wirren, Cybermen, Mummies. Caves doesn't have that except it has the Magma Beast. Is that Robert Holmes acknowledging that part of what makes a great Doctor Who usually is a monster and just trying to throw a monster in there because he feels that's his job to, to try and make it classic Doctor Who? Do you think that monsters do make a classic Doctor Who, given how many of our picks that we've spoken about do revolve around that? I would think if you were probably a... Well, layperson's probably the wrong term, but I think if you were not we, maybe looking on Doctor Who, the monsters would certainly be a big part of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of the, the classic monsters. But I don't know as fans whether you sort of come to expect monsters or not. And part of the audience is is a, is a younger audience, so mm. you, you would want that visual element. Well, I mean, you would think something like Androzani would be totally lost mm. on a young audience, and maybe because there isn't a, a very obvious big bad monster in there, there's just people shafting each other, basically. Yes, um, Morgus talking about the prophets down in his mm. you know, Spectrox mines isn't all that exciting when you're six. You know, and then they have the moment where he, he murders the president and you know he's going to go and have the lift technician shot just you know, yeah. trying to cover his tracks. Mm. Um, yeah. That sort of thing. So It's like what you said at the start, Mark. Is, well, I mean, it does have that Black Seven vibe to it, doesn't it? You know, heavy into the... The, the corporate manipulation and, and uh, you know, capitalism run up, run amok and, 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 and people, as you said, shafting each other. It does have that feeling of uh, of a Black Seven, you know, dystopian, totalitarian mm. feel. Morgus could be uh, Serbalan. Mm. Oh, very, very yeah. much so. Yeah. yeah. There were two things that I picked up as being fairly consistent themes across all of our picks. One is that even going down to the minor characters, the characters are very well fleshed out yeah. and they feel like real people. And we spoke about that, whether it was Marcus Scarman, uh, Dr. Warlock, um, Miss Dawson, uh, Warner in Re- Revenge, uh, any any number of them in Caves of Androzani. Yep. They are all very, very well done and very, very well acted people. And the other I found is there is a sense of slightly higher stakes in what's going on. In Silurians, there is that feeling that the whole world is actually genuinely in danger. Mm. Uh, Revenge, the Cybermen could be back, Voga could be wiped out. Caves, it's the end of a Doctor's era, which isn't high stakes for the universe, but for a viewer, that's probably as high a set of stakes as you can get. And and Pyramids of Mars, the whole universe is in danger. Exactly. So just to interject there and thinking back to some of the discussions we had in new series who around letting the companions die how would that do you think would have flown back then if he'd actually failed and hadn't saved Perry at the end of Androzani but given she's only been in eight episodes mm-hmm. would it have made well, it it'd be like a Katarina situation it's like oh she's gone now like oh fine 
you know, because she wasn't there, I suppose. That, that's probably that. true at that point. Yeah, it was yeah. like a Sarah Jane or something like that. You go, oh my God, that was a massive... I mean, same with Adric, obviously. Some of us got that sense of loss because he'd been there for such a long time. But I think with Perry, he'd be like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, another story that we all, I know, love and could very easily have been part of this conversation and thematically would have fitted in very well with this conversation is the Seeds of Doom. And mm. Camfield's original intention in that was that Sarah was going to get mulched. Yes. And, and then when they ruled that out, he was going to have Sergeant Benton back and he was going to be mulched. Yeah. Now, Camfield was def- desperate to mulch somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and I just don't think that would have flown in the mid-70s. I really don't think it would have. No. I just don't think he no. could have done it. Also, that story, I think they wanted to... They initially discussed killing Lidloff, I think, in the Sunmakers, didn't they? Yes. They did, yes. Did. Yeah, yeah, I think. Um, she, was, yeah. she was actually going to get steamed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, it, would, it wouldn't have... It would not have worked no. with the sort of audience that you had back then. A, a mass tea time audience, I think you've got to be very, very aware of. And, and all the stories we've had do go right up to the edge. They really go right up to the edge in terms of horror, danger violence etc but none of them I feel ever crossed the line uh, in a way that maybe something like Seeds of Doom I think in a couple of moments might, perhaps does cross the line mm-hmm. and, and certainly well, I mean, Hinchcliffe cut that as well didn't he there is a cut in that that Hinchcliffe imposed on it and then we did say there was one earlier in Ark in Space so, so which just proves that Hinchcliffe was very very aware of mm. there being a well, line and, and I yeah. want to go right up to it um, in a way that I think Robert Holmes is very clearly off the leash and when you, you you watch the interviews of Terence Dix talking about working with Robert Holmes, and he talks about you know Robert Holmes really pushed the leash, and and as a script editor you you just have to you know, pull it back a little bit. Chris Boucher says the same thing about Black Seven. You know, Robert Holmes would work the stuff in, and Boucher would then just you know bring it back just to the right side of the line. <laughs> uh, Robert Holmes clearly doesn't do that to himself. No. And Hinchcliffe isn't willing to do it. That, that's why in Talons you get some of that you know casual racism, you get some of that extra violence that maybe if there'd been a script editor working on that might have said look Robert I get what you're doing it's very funny it's very amusing very very witty it's a nice homage but this is going out at tea time to a family audience so let's just cut that there that that hasn't happened in that era Pyramids it works fantastically because it just goes right up there Ark in Space is fantastic because it goes right to the edge but I think they know where the edge was yeah, yeah. I mean in, in terms of the storytelling if, you, if you're taking your audience up to a, a peak I don't know, moment of fear or frenzy or worry about a character's face mm. and you don't cross the line but you come back then you, you've you, you've given them that thrill mm. but then you've, you've taken a step back and then there's that, there's that relief and they sort of you know they look at each other and they laugh like oh that was close I, I, I think it would be a betrayal it would have been a betrayal to a 70s audience to see so Sarah Jane uh, killed or maybe Leela killed or, or, or something like that uh, or mulched or whatever um, I don't think they would as you were saying they wouldn't have tolerated it or, or liked it not you know, Hinchcliffe or the people upstairs who were sort of pushing back on that probably did the right thing. Have things changed within, you know, seven or eight years that we do see a relatively long-standing, you know, companion blown up in Adric, uh, Adric to, to, you know, what, 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 what has changed to allow that? But, but even that, although it works very effectively in Earthshock, it doesn't quite work in the context of the series because they just don't know where to go from there. And I've, I've heard others discuss in other podcasts that if you were making that today and Adric was killed at the end of Earthshock you would open time flight with the, the, the TARDIS crew standing on a planet on a mountain. They'll have erected a little sort of, you know, shrine, a little monument to Adric, and they'll all be sort of, you know, heads down in prayer. And, and then, Murray's and music will be faded up to 11. Murray's music will be fade like, up to 11. Yeah. But there will be that sort of acknowledgement of yeah. they've stopped to remember him, and then throughout the next story there might be, you know, all about how 
Tegan isn't willing to do certain things because hey I've just realised that you can die on the TARDIS mm-hmm. and so now I'm not going to put myself out there that more or, or, or whatever and how the Doctor reacts you know maybe he's a bit more well you stay in the TARDIS until I'm you know there, there would be some sense of consequences almost consequences yeah. of yeah. that and you can't well it doesn't work that they kill Adric and then there's just like so on to our next fun adventure yeah. compared to if I can say Richard Blake 7 where when they do kill a character in series two, mm, yes. the whole next episode is about the consequences of that, how the, yeah. how the career yeah, with that, yeah. and, and indeed it tones the rest of that season. Yeah, because you had a script editor who knew what it was doing. <coughs> oh, that's true. Um, I guess what other things did you guys find that sort of may have been thematic across the picks that we've watched? Or, or are they just really just good fun stories? There was a, a theme of infection or disease or plague or whatever. Yeah. Stories. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know that they unconsciously um, influenced our watching, uh, you know, what we wanted to watch, but... Um, well, they all bloody do, don't they? Well, they're almost, yeah. Revenge, yeah exactly. Revenge's uh, got the virus. you got the... Kaz Mars. Well, you got the ice, you know, the mind control. control. Yeah. Mind control. <laughs> they, they, are, they are all very isolated, though. Yes. Yeah. Um, Solarians ends with everybody locked inside the research centre. Yeah. Pyramids, you've got the barrier. Revenge mm. and Ark, you're just stuck on the, the Ark. Yeah. And, and even in Caves yeah. of Androzani, it's, 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 yeah. it's spaceships, it's the mines, yeah. there's the, the yeah. no escape. Which, I mean, that's, that's template Trout and Doctor Who. Yeah. I mean... People talk about the base under siege being a literal thing, but they, these are all thematically bases under siege. Yeah, mm. they are, and and, and that is, that is I think that's captivating for a viewer. Mm. That if you have a sprawling sort of epic, you know, you can go anywhere. That, that sense of menace or danger that you know is the, 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 the evil encroaches upon you is is absent. But in these stories, as you were saying, I mean, you, you've got your main characters who are trapped in a particular situation and they're beset at all sides. Um, you know, the, the viewer is drawing. How do they survive? What do they need to do to get out of this? And then, and what is the the effect of the menace upon them? Who, who's next to be munched? Well, yeah. exactly right. Goes to the vulture. Yep. And and the Terry Nation version of that in a lot of his stories is that you separate them from the TARDIS at the start of the story. Yep. Yeah. And you see that in Destiny, you see it in Dalek Invasion of Earth, you see it in Planet mm. of the so, so many of them. Death to the Daleks, he knocks the TARDIS yep, out. Yeah, that's right. Knocks it out. Yeah. So again, that's just another way of saying you can't just get into the TARDIS and leave. Yeah. Which which really means that. Although we know the Doctor would never take that option, taking that option off the table really does yep. feel mm. as though it goes to another level. It raises level. the stakes. There's not an escape hatch just off no, the, right. the, no. the left-hand side of the screen. As usual, we plan for classic series. Is there anything in the new series, it's thematically, you think, similar to what we, the stories we discussed? I mean, off the top of your head? Well, I mean, the same pit sort of um, does use Gabriel Wolf in a sense. So you've got, you've got a Sutek-like... Creature, but it and it is sort of set on it. There is a sort of limited number of sets that are on the spaceship yeah. base, uh, so that sort of works like that. There's no sense of danger, is it? Uh, can you can you think of anything? Blink. Apart from yeah. Well, you can't say apart from Blink. Like Blink, Blink, Blink. is is firm as classic because there is that sense of oh, yeah. all the monster needs to do is look at you. Yes. And and yeah. you're you're done. Yeah. And, and that 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 certainly raises. And they they try to get that again with the angels in other s- stories, but yeah. diminishing effort. Diminishing returns. returns. Yeah. Human Nature is probably my favourite new series story and mm. there they raise the stakes differently and it's quite a clever idea by Paul Cornell in the original novel mm. where by making the Doctor human you remove certain tropes or certain abilities from him that he would usually use to get out of something yeah. and that does end up raising the stakes and one of the most memorable scenes in Human Nature or, or Part 2 The Family of Blood 
is the bit of the scarecrows attacking the school mm. and that is quite a grim scene and thematically the whole thing is building towards the fact that you know all these kids are about to go off to the trenches of World War One, and a lot of them are not coming back that's again a very new and modern way to put a sense of bleakness over the top of a story yeah. because you're not showing them die but you're sort of saying well it almost doesn't matter if the Doctor saves them because in six months time they're getting shot up by Germans anyway The Waters of Mars does go for that bleak especially that, ending yeah. I mean you yeah. one of the main yeah. characters blowing her brains out mm. yeah. so that she doesn't become what the Doctor or you know, what the story requires of her or what yeah. history demands um, and has the concept of the fixed point in time kind of become the the uh, the conceit by which you can isolate the, the, the crew yeah. in yes. that again the way they elevate something in something like Fires of Pompeii is that rather than the Doctor saying hey we're in Pompeii um everybody leave now you've got two days yeah. is well fixed point in time so I can't and, and the conflict becomes an emotional one that you yeah. need to watch it happen yeah. well enough in time monster yes. horror isolated location mm. yeah yeah that was actually very good. It was very good. Those, those last two episodes are very good. Uh, even if we did get into trouble for suggesting it had a cop out ending, but. It does have a cop out ending. I don't think there's anything in the Whitaker era that sort of. Face like the Raven? Uh, uh, well, I'm more thinking of the cop out ending, but. Yeah, um, fa- Face the Raven would probably be on this list if it wasn't for a cop out ending. Mm. Yeah. A Whittaker era. It goes for more sunny optimism. It does. Uh, there's a tendency towards that. We'll see. It'd be interesting to see how, if, if anything, on Chibnall, uh, the lockdown and the pandemic has affected his worldview. Maybe you know, there's a possibility there. It won't happen, but that's well. <laughs> maybe the Doctor spending a few hundred years in Charter will uh, bring, her, bring her back. You know, having been in the clink for a few centuries, she'll she'll come back. You know. Bleaker. Um, we know that two of the regular characters are leaving at the end of the episode on New Year's Day, mm. uh, and you know, look, the BBC media machine is talking that up as you know tragic levels and tears will flow and all the rest of that. Which say goodbye to your friends. Yeah. Yeah. Which which you know in the new <laughs> series could could mean anything, but yeah. may, maybe Chibnall will You'll surprise us. Maybe maybe after two series of sunny optimism, that will come as a real body blow if they actually do you know kill Graham or something. Mm. They won't, though. <laughs> well, I mean, they hinted, didn't they, during the last series that um, he's... The cancer's yeah, back. The cancer's back or whatever. Yeah. So whether he makes the noble sacrifice so they can all escape or something, you do it that way. I'm sure it'd be treated in the same effect as yeah, way but, uh, last uh, Given the grimness of, of, of the last year, is Chibnall going to be, you know, the icing on the cake and just say, well, Graham's dead now, he sacrificed himself for the greater good. And, and Smile! <laughs> do they have the right... Yes. <laughs> I mean, I could see Chibnall working out a way to bring back Graham's wife. You know, she's dead, but she's not dead. She, you know, you could just screw that up as well. So. <laughs> well, Wofford well, at the end of Death in Heaven, where the, uh, the, the Iraqi kid that, um, what's oh, his yeah. name, killed, just comes back and, to yeah, life for yes. no apparent reason. Yes. Yeah. Like, we can just return people from the dead now via, I don't know what, because that's, that's how you have a feel-good ending to a bleak episode. Hoping. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the power of love. So what we're basically saying is that the golden era of Doctor Who was golden and that there are some classics and we should watch them often. Yes. <laughs> yes. Especially when the pandemic's all around them. Yep. Increasing, yeah. Increasing regularity. Speaking of 
Speaking of which, what's our next topic, Mark? Carrying on on our cheery uh, pandemic theme, we thought we'd have a talk about our top three Doctor Who stories featuring plagues. We're going to go around the room and we'll discuss our picks. Now, the same rules apply. If you have the same as somebody else, you yell out, snap. Um, it's going to be really good because we're in the same room. We can visually see what we're doing. Lists at the ready, guys. And uh, we'll look to Rob to kick off. Number three. Well, the one that immediately springs to mind, not only because you get the sort of large version of it, but it also coincides with my brother's birth, uh, is the sentient virus in The Invisible Enemy. Oh. The Great Prawn. Oh. Yes. Oh. The nucleus. Contact has been made. Straight from the wet markets of Wuhan. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's probably the most memorable manifestation of the idea of a virus uh, in, in Doctor Who. I mean, memorable probably for the wrong reasons. But, I mean, there is that element of a, a sort of a virus that is telepathic in a, in a way, that it jumps from people to people. To people. And mm-hmm. I suppose the way they steal wholesale from the Fantastic Voyage and inject the Doctor and Leela into... Is it the Doctor's body? The, 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 yeah, yeah. Body. yeah. And, uh, and, and sort of just def- help to defeat the... or understand more about the nucleus anyway. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's it's, it's a fun one. It's not, not a particularly great one, but, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. Mm. Mm. Richard? We've already talked about a couple, obviously, in uh, Revenge of the Cybermen and the Silurians, so I'll go for something different. Yes. Um, I'm actually going to go for the Sensorites. Ooh! That made my short list, but it's not a snap. Not a snap. Okay, yeah, okay. Because once you get past the first couple of episodes and they actually get down to the planet, that is the main thing there. They're, they're slowly being what they think is a plague. Mm. Um, and they sort of set the doctor towards curing it. So, and Ian comes down with it. Yes, Ian does come down with it. Um, Completely forgot about the sensorites. Is the sensorites the forgotten Harnel? Not when the smugglers exist. Or doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> the savages. The, 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 the savages, savages is even less mem- yeah. memorable or memorised or known. It's got to be one of those two. But yeah. the sensorites is probably the most ignored or overlooked one of the first series. Yes. Yeah. Is that because it's very dull? I mean, once you get until you get down to the planet, the then it's The first two episodes are very very dull. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that... Sell it, it Richard, sell it. Well, I mean, besides, <laughs> I, I, I think the first cliffhanger with the sensor on looking in through the window. That's actually quite good. <laughs> He's well, doing it perfectly in the sunroom. You sort of get... I wonder whether William Russell's about to sort of burst out laughing. Um, and then you sort of get the, they want me to go with them down to their planet. Um, I agree the first two episodes of The Sensorites are a little bit dull but I actually think once they're down on the planet the the stakes do raise quite a bit it's it's not the best in series one in fact it probably is probably the weakest of season one but season Mm. one's a very good season Mm. um but yeah, the, the, the plague stuff there is actually a very, very important part. And yeah. we, we maybe should just check, check off as we go through our picks. Does the Doctor or Companion succumb to the plague in these particular picks? And yep. the Doctor certainly does. And in that one, yep. Ian does. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's a very good choice. Yeah, very good. Well, my number three is The Ark. Snap. Oh, you got a snap? Snap. Okay, excellent. Right, right, so here we go. So I'll, I'll, I'll start off with my stuff. I'm sure you'll uh, you'll add to it. So uh, from the program's most creative period, you uh, would agree with me, Dave? Yes. Uh, this story demonstrates what havoc a, a medical condition from one place can have on another. Of course, it was Dodo who caught the cold uh, from the wet markets of Covent Garden and infected the Ark's inhabitants. Weakens the humans to the point where the monoids take over and um, the whole shift of power is then transferred from the human to the monoids. It's a bit like and the China virus, which is undermining America to China's... From China. Anyway. <laughs> I thought the Ark was a pretty good plague story because you can actually see the consequences um, to a um, to a society. Yeah, and there's a couple of other points that I had in there as well. It was always going to be one of my picks. 
apart from the fact that yes the whole plot and the whole twist in the plot everything revolves around the plague mm. to the point that episode 2 is actually called The Plague mm. um, there's some very interesting stuff in there like the way the Doctor goes about finding a vaccine yeah. which is very um, nothing like it would actually be <laughs> as we've discovered in real life yes. it's very, very interesting but even that kind of subtle idea that for the human guardians the plague is very very worrying when the monoids are getting it but it's kind of you know in the background suddenly a human gets it and dies and mm-hmm. hang on this is a big deal and I think that if we're going to be a little bit you know honest about where we are right now as a, as a planet and, and we've been the last year that sense of plagues are really bad and concerning other countries but we only really take notice of them when they get to our country mm. yes that I think is actually quite reflected in the arc yeah the parallels are quite there now aren't yeah they, they? they really yes. actually do yes. stand up number two as Dave you've um, you cut my lunch on that one we're going to go back to Rob your second choice please so the one that struck me the most when I was younger was uh, the use of the bubonic plague in the visitation the mm. um, have uh, apparently genetically modified some bacteria and sort of infected the rats and uh, this is London in the 16 or near London in 1666 so that, that the bubonic plague hangs over that story and then of course we have the resolution and they sort of burn down London in the last episode and, um, look again I mean as we've been experiencing this year you, you, you can see the you know, devastating effects of a virus uh, or you know, a plague that, that spreads around the world and I mean the bubonic plague is the, the one that stands up in um, Western memory, anyway, has uh, as, as been the defining sort of moment of the Middle Ages, really. I mean, thirty percent of the population across Europe was destroyed or died. Right. Um, so, the, the use of it in the show, uh, I think, is reasonably clever. I think um, it, it's certainly different from. I mean, it's a measure of how desperate these pterodactyls are that they have to use their scientific knowledge to undermine human society, so that they can effectively take over instead of just you know battle fleets hovering in orbit ready mm-hmm. to you know blast us away. Yeah. So it's interesting in that regard. Richard, well. For one, that, that obviously affects the companion. The obvious one is Revenge of the Cybermen, but we've mm. sort of talked about that during our classic story, so I'm actually going to go for the Moon Base. Ooh. Moon Base. Yeah, that's really? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Is that yeah. a snap? Snap. That's a snap yeah. for you, Rob? Yeah, it's a snap. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't affect, obviously, the TARDIS crew, but you do have, you know, this, this unexplained illness um, affecting the base, and the, obviously the, the obvious targets are the Doctor and friends are sort of accused initially um, of, of spreading it or whatever. Um, as indeed happens, Kelman sort of tries very hard to convince people in uh, Revenge that, you know, the, the Doctor and Harry and Sarah obviously clearly are the cause of the plague. But, um, and, and it does sort of then become the Doctor. He does the investigating and obviously discovers that it's something ultimately in the sugar. But um, plus you get that really cool effect with the... You know, yes, you know, virus. Yeah, really good, virus right? effect in the nerves of the, of the skin and whatever. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, that was my choice. I remember being uh, struck by that when I read the novelisation, because I read the novelisation before I saw the surviving episodes, and, and the, the fact that there was the sugar that um, was the, the medium of, it, of, of, of transmission. Um, it's interesting that, the, you know, if you think about it, the Cybermen have decided that humanity's weak spot is its sweet spot. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you know, infecting the sugar, and everyone likes, you know, three table little teaspoons in their, in their coffee or their tea or whatever. Mm. Um, that regard. That's why I haven't taken sugar in my tea or coffee for 20 years. I've been after the moon, 
Uh, my number two is Resurrection of the Daleks. Look, this story isn't great, let's be honest with you, but in terms of uh, seeing what an effect a virus can do, I mean, we've got the obviously the, the example in one of the other stories we talked about, but, um, you know, for me, as a, uh, I hadn't seen the Solarians at, at the time, but for me, when Mercer turns around, when that lady goes, what's that terrible smell? And, you know, when he turns around, he's just looking at his Ooh, fingers and, goes, and his, his face is melting. I was going, help me, help me, like that. Don't really freak me out on transmission, mm-hmm. and of course, then you see the the the, the, the effects of the Mabellum virus on on the Daleks when the Doctor sort of lobs a couple of cans at them, and the shading phone disappears everywhere. Um, so, in terms of, I suppose, a, a, a visualization of, an, of a virus or or, or a plague uh, taking over something, uh, I think Resurrection's pretty good if you're into that sort of thing. It's all like the Hills Have Eyes, Doctor Who style, isn't it? Really? <laughs> So, look, I'll just echo, before I go on, what Richard said before, that I could very easily have had the Sutherlands in my top three, but given that we were waxing lyrical about that in our first segment, I, mm. I haven't included it. So my second pick is from the new series. Ooh. It is from the classic Eccleston era, and I've picked The Empty Child. Oh, yes. Because yes. I yes. can remember us all watching that and mm. all saying at the time that the virus or plague or disease or what you don't really know what it is in that first episode, mm. that was by far the most terrifying part of it. And the bit where Richard Wilson catches yes. it yes. And, and, and changes, that, that is a horrific moment. Yeah. But all the way through that episode and even, even the, the second part, is that sort of sense of we don't know how to get it, we don't know how to stop it. It, it reminds me of that line that Villa has in an episode of Blake 7 where he says, you know, I don't like viruses, you can't hear them, you can't see them, you can't taste them, then you're dead. <laughs> 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 and, and it is that actually that very creepy thing that, you, you know, a Simon or a Dalek has to physically come up to you and get you, whereas you, you don't know where this, this, this virus is coming yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. You, you touch the wrong thing, you can get it. And mm. it, it actually is a very... It's probably the most terrifying thing... Certainly in the Eccleston era, possibly in the RTD era. Just in yes. terms of really, really going for a bit of nastiness. So yeah, and the sound the effect as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's a very memorable one. So yeah, I thought a, that one. That's a good one, nice. actually. It's a really good one. Yeah. Number one. Rob, back to you. What comes from one of my favourite novelizations, and it's not the main part of the book, but it's a catalyzing or main part of the story, but it's a catalyzing event. It's the uh, the Daleks peppering the Earth with plague-riddled meteorites. Prior to, in, um, yeah, yes, in, uh, the Dalek invasion of Earth. Snap. Yes. There we go. Very good. So, uh, snap. Well, yes. Yes. that was a nice I mean, it, I should be playing blankety blanks. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about the best Dalek stories being where they are, you know, sinister and planning and methodical. Um, but you know, you, you sort of rarely see it, mm-hmm. and uh, there's an element of that in their pre-planning for the invasion of Earth. You know, it's not again, it's not battle fleets in the sky. It's you know what? Let's just uh, let's economise here on you know things getting blown up by just you know decimating or you know reducing the population of the Earth by ninety percent and just waltzing right in and take over and then dig a big hole in Bedfordshire. But I think it demonstrates their cunning and their and their, their, their just cold malice in terms of this is the most efficient way to invade invade this planet. Mm. Let's hit them with meteorites and they won't even know what's coming until they all start dying off. So I, I, uh, Dark invasion of Earth for me, right. Dave. No, I can really just echo what you said there, Rob. Although we actually don't see the plague itself, we see the consequences of the plague, mm. we see what it's done to society, and, and one of the most memorable images, frankly, of the whole of the show, 
is surely that poster under the bridge in London. Mm. It is forbidden to dub bodies into the river. Yeah. Um, with with I think we now have to pay copyright to the Diddly Dumb podcast for using that phrase. <laughs> Again. <laughs> um, but but it, it really is a, a, an iconic image, certainly at the heart and earlier. And I would say of the whole show mm. of London. You know, you know, Do- Doctor Who for all of its you know travel anywhere in time and space is a London based TV show like that that is where the heart of Doctor Who is and to see that city destroyed run down and a poster that says you can't dump bodies in the river just shows you in the simplest but most effective way how society has broken down and collapsed and and that without seeing a single dead body from the plague is a terrifying concept Mm. Mm. yeah you you can imagine that if COVID was not Two or three percent lethal, but fifteen or twenty percent lethal. Actual signs like that possibly appearing across, you know, major urban centres. If people were, you know, twenty percent of the population was dropping dead, you could yeah. see that sort of mm. thing. There's a horrifying thought outbreak or something. Yeah, yeah. Or survivors, or any one of those. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 Or threads. No, sorry. <laughs> or Walking Dead. Richard. Well, I actually had the Solarians as my number one, so I'll go for something else. And I actually will go with another Dalek story. I'll go for Death of the Daleks. Yeah. Another one on my shortlist. Yes, there you go. Too, yes. That, that's assuming I'm not allowed to have Killer from Blake 7. Because <laughs> <laughs> that has got a really cool virus idea in it. But, it has, yes. Um, yeah, so no, I'll, I'll go for Death of the Daleks, because the whole conceit behind that is, is the Daleks are there to ensure humanity doesn't get the uh, mineral they need. To, to produce the vaccine. So, so can I pause you there? Because I've got a question I've always wanted to know the answer to, and I don't know if we have the answer, but I want yeah. to get your views. In Death to the Daleks, yes. what, was there a naturally occurring plague that both sides are after the cure for, or did the Daleks infect mankind with the plague and want to stop mankind getting the antidote? I've actually always taken it that the Daleks have engineered it, but I, I don't know where I got that idea from. That it's not implicit in the story, no, is it? No, I think it was basically it was affecting both of them. The race was on to get it. That's what the Daleks say. Yeah, but. Because mm, the then there's all the other stuff though, where they're talking about you know how the Daleks have sort of killed people and that are you know making a major push to take over the you know whatever it is. Um, you know how is it Galloway? I think he's you know he's he's really bitter because he you know he had family members killed by the Daleks or whatever it is he says. Yeah. Um, so I've actually always taken it yeah that they um, that they engineered it and were sort of trying to stop humanity coming up with a cure. But as I said, I'm not 100 now. You say that where I got that idea from? Which mean, uh, which would beg the question: Why the Daleks want the Prinium? Why wouldn't they just wipe the humans out and stop them mining the Prinium? Was mm. they actually do mine and take it back with them? So mm. it, it's not clear. In the st- sorry, that's just a bit of divergent. But I was, I was curious on the point. Your idea has more nuance in terms of the Daleks engineering it and, mm. and releasing it. Um, whereas I, I suppose it's more a nation thing. That everyone, 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 it's yeah. everyone, everyone equally. And it's, the race is on for the cure. Yeah. Why do I call Death of the Daleks comfort Doctor Who when it's got so grim? <laughs> it's, got, it's got very grim tones in it. Well, and ends with a guy committing suicide. Exactly. To stop the what Daleks. Doing? Yeah. <laughs> Hold the nine on next week. It's, it's look as we discussed earlier in this episode. It's all about the way it's done. Yeah, it's all about the way it's done. Yeah, yeah. Ostensibly yeah. a show for kids or older kids. There's a lot of you look at the seventies from you know go to work. There's a lot of bleak stuff in there that <laughs> mm. kids are expected to just cop. Mm. You know, murder. You know, death. Uh, sadism. Yeah, exactly. Infection. Yeah. It's all. Watching. Like, you know, the, the, it's just, 
We bloody loved it, Rob. We bloody loved it. We did. I mean, that's why yeah. it's memorable for us. Of, of a certain age. Yeah. But then, I suppose, you know, I mean, I know there's been a lot of discussion and things written about this sort of stuff, but see, they had in Britain things like those safety ads they used to sell to children, which showed them being electrocuted <laughs> and having pieces hacked off them and, you know, putting your hand in the lawnmower. I, I remember the ones with the, when you used to touch the sparklers, you know, for the yeah. forks, you know, and you see kids, oh, you know, next thing you know, they've got massive burn head. and it looked like... Yeah. But, but, but even yeah. if, if we're going to take, go down this path for 30 seconds and why not? My favourite cartoon growing up as a kid in the 1980s was The Mysterious Cities of Gold. Yes. Now, that is not only bleak, but it spends two seasons basically waiting for the, the main character, Esteban, who's about a 10-year-old boy, trying to find his father. Mm. In the last episode of Series 2, he finds his father, who then probably has to go and sacrifice himself to save the world. Like, I can't remember being absolutely devastated by that as a, about an eight-year-old, but it's a, it's a wonderful series and, yeah. and so high impact. And, you know, it's... It's a bit more than, you know, Paw Patrol. <laughs> is, it because, <laughs> slightly. is it because kids were less coddled back then? I can only yeah, assume. I think so. Well, let me ask this back. Is the, you, you, you three have all got kids of yourself. I have yeah. it. So I'm, I'll ask the question of you. Yeah. Would you let a, your kid, when they're age six, watch the Hitchcliffe era in the way we all did, or wouldn't you? You're all hesitating, aren't you? Given, given, yeah. given one of my daughters had nightmares after watching Ghostbusters. Yep. Um, no, I probably wouldn't. And even now, so my daughters are 15 and 13, I hesitate to allow my oldest one to watch, say, something like, you know, uh, It, the movie version yeah. of It, because, yeah, I, I suppose we might be more aware or overly sensitive towards to the psychological impact of probably terrifying images or children in other children in peril or something like that. Like, look, I don't know. My son wanted to watch Robocop, the original 87 version, <laughs> right, for his birthday. Now, he was turning 14, he goes, I want to watch it. I said, okay. So I found a version of it, right? I'd now, buy that for a dollar. <laughs> I don't think I did buy it for any sort of dollars. But anyway, I put it on and then he said that the warehouse scene was about to, you know, get, you know... Um, anyway, yeah. and uh, my wife looks at me and she goes, I went, I got a director's cut. Oh. oh. And, next thing, and next thing you know, my son is holding his blanket and my daughter's got no Yes, Jesus. So, note to self, I always Aging make sure. Child services. <laughs> note to self, just make sure you check the labels for you uh, broadcast. Look at the R on the bottom left hand corner. No, I thought it said R. I thought it said R plus. I thought it said R meant restored. Restoration. So, uh, yes, any more uh, family movie suggestions, threads, Robocop, please contact me. I've got a list ready to go. <laughs> uh, so, I think in answer, they are more coddled these days. Uh, they are. Yeah, I, agree. I, I yeah, think so. I Look, we, we had, I remember my son had a, you know, he was going to have a couple of movies with his mates and a sleepover with one of his, it had been, what, his 12th birthday? Yeah. Um, and I know one of the kids wanted to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Um, and a couple of parents were like, you're not going to let them watch that, are you? And I was like, well, I was about 11 when I saw Raiders. Yeah. Um, you know, but, yeah, it's a... Oh, well, I suppose there's the, the bit, let's face it, there's the bit at the end where the... Oh, faces melt off. Yeah, yeah. and stuff. I mean, I... They were doing that in Dragonfire to various Yeah, effects. well, I can remember being that age and somebody went in to watch Terminator 2. Yeah. And, and, and the parents did sort of say, right... 
you know, you're all going to phone your parents and make sure they're cool with it because we're not taking the blame if they, you know, <laughs> you know we're, we're, we're sharing the blame around on this one. Well, look, but, 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 but every, every parent said, yeah, that's fine, you know, they're, they're 12, go ahead and watch it. Back in the day, kids found a way. I mean, I remember attending an end of my first year of high school back in 84, we attended an end of year party at a friend's place. Two movies. One of the movies was The Toxic Avenger. There's <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of 13-year-old boys and girls watching The Toxic Avenger, and no parents were involved. The boy who took it out from the video store just sort of waltzed in, but here it is. Right. And, you know, there's people getting killed. There's someone whose head get run, heads gets run over. Yeah, it's horrifying. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. I'm still talking about it now. It's the other one. Was it a similar vein? No, no similar it was... It was... It was... One of uh, the advisors in the West Wing, what's his name? Uh, the pretty one who had the sex thing in the 80s. Rob Lowe? Yes. What's that movie with Rob Lowe with that ensemble cast in the mid 80s? Set number five. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. And one of the girls, you know, they're all weeping. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. I saw Evil Dead you know, when I was 13. Yeah, I, I, can remember, I can remember somebody had an uncut version of Basic Instinct at 13 and, yeah. you know, you, you'd have a sleepover party and like waiting for the... Beaver! No. <laughs> you know, everybody's waiting for the, you know, the, the, the responsible parent to finally just crash at 2am and right now, now we can put on Basic Instinct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 we've talked that into the ground then. Yeah, well, I think so. But my number one is The Green Death, mainly because it's set in Wales. The oh. <laughs> Green Death. You have the virus there, obviously. Uh, you it's know, which is man, which is it's yeah, it's man-made virus. Again, you can see the effects on, on, on the miners, and of course, you know, Joe gets very uh, attached to 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 Bert, who then dies of the virus, and then it's about the race for the cure again. But the, the nut hutch, uh, which was basically a Pfizer sort of um, offshoot there, um, coming up with a, with a cure accidentally at the end of throwing mushrooms around and, and to uh, cure the virus. So uh, the Green Death. Number one in the virus states. With the bullet. Everybody happy with their choices there? Some good surprises, I thought. Sensorites. Mm-hmm. Nice variety, thank you very much. Yes. No, nobody mentioned Terminus. No, no. no for, for, for a story that is literally scoped around the concept of a virus yeah. or a disease, yeah. once again, it's just how it's done, and it yeah. wasn't done well there. It was not remotely convincing. It's forgettable, isn't it? It's, it's really forgettable, yeah. It's just not that people walk around in bandages. That's all that was. Does it say something that we've been able to go through a dozen picks from the classic series and we're really scraping for the new series? Uh, new Earth sort of has the, the kind of the virus yeah. Yeah. Um, and there yeah. are a couple of others, but it's it's not a trope they go to in modern Who, is it? No, it's more, no. more of a, uh, a background feature. I mean, look at the girl who waited, there's, there's that element there. Uh, so yeah. There's more of a direct impact on Amy, I suppose, but otherwise it's... No. Yeah. Whether they don't know how to realise it or don't know how to discuss it or they don't think it, had, it, it potentially has that impact, or maybe it's just too horrifying you know for, for, for a, you know, a modern audience or, or just not in the zeitgeist for 2020 up yeah. until now I mean mm. well, I'm sure we're going to be plagued excuse the pun with uh, plenty of uh, you know you know, pandemic related uh, movies in the next couple of years yeah. in, in, in the same way that the last 20 years we just saw the massive spike in terrorist movies for yeah. example yes. exactly yeah. 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 yeah exactly but I mean really would you go to the cinema watching a movie about a pandemic we just lived through one yeah, really, it's done well. I mean, I, I tend to, I, I tend to find that it's the bits up to the lead up of the collapse of civilization that I enjoy the most in anything mm-hmm. like that. I mean, if I've read The Stand by Stephen King, it's the bit up before they all, you know, sort of the survivors coalesce that I yeah. find interesting. If you're watching, say, Twenty Eight Days Later, I mean, that's that's good in and of itself, good. but yeah. it's the it's the collapse of civilization beforehand that I really yeah. enjoy. Yeah, which probably says a lot about me. 
But yeah. the, everything else afterward, you know, the su- survivors. I'm su- I haven't watched survivors, but I, you know, the first two or three episodes are probably the most effective of the entire four years. Absolutely, absolutely. No and then everything that. else after that is well, let's just have a, a, a little hobby farm or some nonsense like that. It's like that. the good life, isn't it? By yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. And now we're going to head off into our Target Book Club segment where we take a journey back to the uh, Target books of yesteryear, picking out some novelisations based on at least theme and talking about them. Uh, after last year's sort of uh, 10 Sticks' is, uh, new adventure, uh, four A's. We thought we'd take a different slant this year and look at the historical novelizations of the uh, Target book range. So we had a bit of a whiz around and uh, discussed the uh, the selections we did. So uh, I'm going to look at uh, Doctor Who and the Highlanders. And Dave, you're looking at... Uh, the Reign of Terror. We've in fact got one from each of the show's first four seasons. Yeah, we did. And I think, Rob, you got the... Romans. And Richard, you got the... Gunfighters. Very good. Okay. So who's going to kick us off? I think Richard should kick us off. Yay! Pick me, Mark. Pick me. Well, yeah, as we said, I had the Gunfighters by Donald Cotton. Mm -hmm. Um, We are going to hear one of Donald Cotton's other tomes in a moment. Um, The thing with Donald Cotton's books, obviously, is that he writes them from the perspective of somebody observing the story, uh, as opposed to sort of writing the the, the traditional Terence Dicks sort of third-person prose. Mm. The first thing you probably notice about the gunfighters, uh, look, leaving aside all the historical inaccuracies in the story, um, it has only probably a nodding acquaintance with uh, <laughs> what actually happened in Tombstone. There's a gunfighter in it. That's yeah. about it. <laughs> there was somebody called White Earp. Yes, Earth. there was there. Um, well, actually, and he had a gun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, the, the, <laughs> central, the central person actually in the gunfighter, the O.K.O. Crow, wasn't White Earp. It was actually Virgil because he was the he was the marshal in the town. And the gun they keep mentioning throughout the bump line special, um, I believe the current thing is, that, which was actually a long barrel pistol, like a 12 like a pistol with a 12-inch long barrel, um, never existed. Yeah, and of course, Ned Buntline himself uh, was just a pen name of a gentleman called Edward Judson, uh, who wrote a number of, I guess, what you would call those sort of sensational, sort of penny dreadful, uh, what the Americans only call dime store novels, mm. um, sort of across the, the mid-19th century. Um, but it's told from um, Ned Buntline's perspective and it is apparently an interview he got from uh, Doc Holliday when Holliday was on his deathbed um, where he tells the, the true story of the OK Corral. <laughs> um, yeah, as I said, historically completely inaccurate. Um, it does go a lot further than the televised series, so you have stuff like Doc Holliday actually explaining about the TARDIS um, and what it does and, and how it works and whatever and how it's a marvellous device that can take you between planets. Um, probably the other thing you notice most immediately against the televised ep- uh, episodes, there's no song. Now, depending on what you think of the televised version of the Gunfighters, that is either a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I actually don't mind the televised story. Look, I think if you're in the right mood, it's actually quite a fun little story. There's some very witty dialogue. There, there is some very witty it's dialogue. It's not as bad as what it... Uh, definitely not. The Absolutely song is annoying, but the rest of it's actually quite lovely. Yeah. Um, the book is written in a... a I assume it's probably intended to be a pastiche of those sort of, you know, as I said, those sort of sensational, dreadful sort of novels, um, I think. So it is a bit heavy, um, probably on on some of the prose, but um, it is quite a light, witty read. I hadn't read it for a very long time. I reckon I probably read it when the book first came out in the mid-'80s, and probably, which was years before I actually saw the story. Um, And then, you know, probably maybe once since. 
Um, but look, I found it a really enjoyable read. Um, it does do the thing where it expands uh, the televised story a bit. Now, I initially thought, well, maybe, I, I couldn't remember reading it, I sort of thought, well, maybe it'd sort of maybe bring back to close to what really happened um, and try and sort of set the record straight, but it actually goes even further out. Um, as I said, you have Doc Holliday being aware of the TARDIS. Um, you also have a wonderful scene near the end where they actually go into the gunfight and the Doctor sort of dragged along with them holding a shotgun, um, <laughs> shoots, two st- <laughs> shoots two bystanders <laughs> when he accidentally discharges the weapon, one of which explicitly says that he killed. Um, Doctor Victorious. Yeah, <laughs> shoots the hat off, uh, off another bloke um, and then seemed to be having a great time. So... <laughs> So look, all up, a pretty fun read. I think it's a pretty fun story, but yeah, I don't know the one I'm going to come back to quickly. Okay, very good. Thank you, Richard. Uh, out of 10? How would you, would you rate it out of 10? Um, probably six butt wine specials out of 10. Fair enough. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. Dave, over to you. Well, thank you, Mark. So I chose to read The Reign of Terror. Um, when you put up the concept of reading a historical novelisation, I sort of went through all of my favourites, and people who listen to these would know that I'm a big fan of those stories. Yes, so not Black Orchid, no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, but I sort of thought, look, I should read a story that I think is actually weaker on the television and see how the novel holds up compared to that, so that's why I picked The Reign of Terror. Uh, let me start off by saying it's by Ian Martyr. Yeah. Uh, what I wasn't expecting when I came to pick it was that, unlike most Target novels, this is 160 pages Ooh, long wow. and in small print. Wow. <laughs> so there's actually quite a bit in this. It's incredibly close to the actual story, surprisingly so for Ian Marta, who, you look at stuff like the Robots Operation and the Ark in Space, he, he's quite well known for de- deviating yeah. and embellishing where you go, whereas this is actually very, very, very true to the, the story on screen. Yeah. Uh, an interesting point, though, Everybody here actually speaks French. So it actually talks about how the Doctor speaks immaculate French, Barbara speaks very good French, Ian sort of has to stumble by in tourist French, and there's some quite actually fun scenes where Ian's being interrogated and trying to find the words, you know, in French to have this conversation, or, or where um, Lemaitre reveals himself to be James Sterling and starts talking to them in English, and Jules Renan is, like, struggling to, like, carry on with this conversation because they're all having it, which is just a bizarre thing to happen. And given that, you know, Ian Martyr was actually in the show. I mean, did he speak, think that he was speaking Wirren in, in the Ark of Space? <laughs> you know, it, well, it, well it, he wasn't in The Mask of Mandrager, so that bit was probably never explained to him. So. No, or, you know, did, 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 he, did he think that the character of um, Harry could, could speak Sontara? Not, yeah. you know, who knows? But that was an interesting conceit. Um, it's slightly overwritten, but that, that, that kind of works for the story. Uh, it does actually contain all the flaws of the script of the story in that historically it's look there were people called Paul Brass and Robespierre and Napoleon Um, it's very unlikely that what the story actually says happened happened. Uh, it's it's also very clear I don't know whether this is Ian Martyr uh, adopting the philosophy of the original story, mm. or it's Ian Martyr's own philosophy, which which was quite common in people are brought up on the history of you know twentieth century English, but they adopt a very uh, anti-revolution stance, which, which the story does, and the novel really, really does. You know, the, the novel very clearly takes sides on what's going on in the revolution, uh, and it also doesn't fix the massive glaring plot hole, which I thought it would, which is that the conversation that Ian 
um, has with Webster that he describes in part six of the story bears no resemblance at all to the conversation he actually has with Webster in part two, which I would have thought would be the first thing in fiction novelization, but but they don't. It, it, so it remains very accurate. It's very readable. One thing that actually does work here, and and, and let me preface this by saying I'm not a Carol Ann Ford basher. I, I like her acting. I like the character for the most part, although Susan was badly written. But The Reign of Terror, I think, is notoriously Susan's worst story, mm. uh, to, to the point where on screen they have a moment to escape from the gear team and Susan's just like, no, I can't, I've got a headache. And it just doesn't work at all. In this one, because you haven't sort of got that performance going on and, and you can actually go inside and you know how Susan's feeling, how sick she is, it, it works a lot better and Susan comes a lot comes off a lot better here and, and also the whole um, escape recapture escape sort of thing that is, is in the story is managed a lot better in prose because you can take the time to explain the motivations of the characters and why they're doing it and, and all that sort of thing so it does lift the story a bit but the problem the Reign of Terror has is there actually is no villain you know, there's no Detoxel, there's no Tagana, um, there's there's no Clanton Brothers, there's no Nero. It's it's really is just getting into history, getting captured, and trying to escape mm. for six episodes, which isn't all that satisfying. So, look, a good read, a fun read. I suspect that if you were reading this when it came out, which was long before the Reign of Terror was cer- even circulating really on, on on fan copies, let alone released on VHS, yeah. probably twenty years before this came out on VHS after the publication of the book. Um, let alone DVD. So, you know, this would have been a very valuable and very accurate target novel. But yeah. but now it's it's probably a little bit redundant and it, it doesn't add anything special like the really good targets do. Mm. Is it better than a TV adaption? Because, I mean, a TV adaption to me is quite dull. Um, did you get more out of it? it? It flowed better than the TV adaption, I've got to say. Okay. Yeah, because the TV adaption is pretty... It's it's probably the weakest of the Hartnell historials. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just two episodes too long, really. Over to you, Rob, your choice. Yes, well, tapping into my uh, illustrious heritage, I've chosen the Romans. <laughs> uh, again, this is a Donald Cotton book, yep. uh, as Richard pointed out before. Uh, my understanding, thanks to Tardis Wikia, is that this is the only epistolary uh, novelisation. Everything is effective, well, it is uh, uh, um, a journal or a letter. Uh, or some sort of historical document that I believe it's Tacitus at the start as a framing device where Tacitus is, I think he's talking to, is writing to his publisher uh, about, you know, I've, I've got this wonderful parcel of documents that have come, into, come to hand which will change our understanding of history. Um, it is, I love it. I really love it. It's, it, it, is, it, is, it is witty. It is, it is overwritten, but it's, it's, when you've got lines like, and thank you to uh, my Kindle here, where Tacitus is saying, for the moment I will only remind you that there are more things in Olympus and Earth than are dreamed of by an urban district employee of a lowly grade and status. When you have lines like that, I mean, it gives you a flavour of what Cotton is attempting to do. It, it, it loosely bases itself on the serial, the television serial, from, from yeah. what I can remember. Uh, there is a doctor and there is an Ian and there's a barber and there's a Vicky. And that's basically it. Once they sort of leave that, that, that villa that they're in, it's off to the races. There's, there's a whole different story. I mean, they've met the same sort of characters. And uh, I, it's 
the format, you, obviously, like we've talked about before, you couldn't do it with every novelisation, obviously, but I think it perfectly suits this. It's, it's a historical, so we're looking at it through the, the, the lens of historical documents. Uh, Ian's constant carping and complaining as he's writing to the headmaster is hilarious. You know, usually Ian is the more stoic of the characters, but here he's just, you know, he's complaining about being a slave and he's complaining about <laughs> this, and, you know, he's, he's expecting to die and all that sort of thing. Uh, Vicky is, is, is basically sidelined. She sort of makes a couple of appearances here and the Doctor spends most of his time complaining about her screaming, which is which, which is funny. Uh, the Doctor comes across as being a, a supercilious, egocentric, you know, I, I, I can, you know, pick up the uh, liar and, uh, and and just become a master of it immediately. He's, he's got this atonal masterpiece that he's intending to play at this symposium or this, this, this concert and, you know, it, it, it's just... Uh, it's a really entertaining. It's it's the writing will lead leaps off the page. Um, I, look, I'd, I'd give it a, a nine out of ten. It's, wow. it's, it's, I, I I loved it. I embraced it. I, I, was, I found it hilarious. Because I do remember a time, and I again, like much like the Gunfighters, I wouldn't have read the Romans for probably thirty years. But I remember a time when that was probably regularly voted. I think the worst book I, in the race. I, I agree. Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and reflecting upon it, when Rob, you sort of hinted in the WhatsApp chat that you really enjoyed this. I wonder if it is that thing of back when the targets first came out, particularly the Hartnells, this was the only way to experience that story. Mm. And, and you can't experience the television story via that book. No. You just can't. But now that we can go and watch our DVD of the Romans, having this as something that takes the concept and flies in a whole different direction probably is more welcome than it was back in the yeah. what, late 80s, early 90s. Mm. I mean, if this was a straight Terrence Dix retelling, it would have been as dull as dishwater and we wouldn't have enlivened the material... Uh, Whatsoever, um, I, I just think the method of delivery of, of the storyline, Cotton's willingness to abandon, you know, the actual storyline for something that he finds more entertaining to himself, perhaps, uh, it's just bravo. I, I think I think it yeah. really is. It's it's in a it's probably too strong to say. It's groundbreaking in terms of what you can do if you're adapting material that's come before you. Because it's not even in script. Because I've just Dennis Spooner. Spooner. So he's yeah. basically taken it and, and, and done something. Well, he's different. taken the storyline. He hasn't taken any yeah. of the elements of the script, really. Yeah, because I mean, when we were dishing out the historicals, I was saying there's a joke. Oh, Richard, you've got the Romans, and then, <laughs> and then Rob took it because I, when I read it when I was seventeen or whatever it was, I hated it. I thought, mm. I mean, especially the framing of it, you know, because I was so used to it's incredibly disjointed. Yeah, I just yeah. I was used to the more traditional. Me too. Just pros. thinking about it, I mean, there's a there's a Douglas Adams ish sense of the absurd to the whole pro whole proceedings mm. in, in a sense. I mean, Nero regards himself as being a fine fellow, you know, uh, and, and and the Doctor, the way the Doctor portrays himself, I mean, he thinks he's great, but you can look at him and go, you, you're just a Trump like figure who's bigging yourself up. You, know, you can do this, that, and the other. Uh, absolutely nothing. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's really good, really good. Well, yeah, one to go and rewrote clearly. Yeah, I, 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 and, and, yeah, I think it will. Yeah, and again, perhaps because kind of like you, Mark, I was a teenager when I read it the first time, yeah. and, and maybe you know we weren't at the material, the headspace to to appreciate it. I'm, I'm just looking through my copy here now, and you know, things like the headline, document twenty, second selection of jottings from Nero's scrapbook, <laughs> probably isn't what I was after when I was fourteen. No, no. exactly. You're expecting the wheezing groaning sound, and off you go at the traditional sort of sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Archie will seek that out now, Rob. You've uh, don't blame me if you don't like it. No, 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 not at all, not at all. 
Now, Mark, yes, you're up. I am indeed, and the uh, one I chose was well, you guys sort of went for the the the, uh, the Hartnell historicals because there are more of them. So I went for the uh, the only time there was a historical in the Toronto era, and that was the, um, the the Highlander. So this book was Jerry uh, at Davis's return to the Target Fold after uh, from 1978. We did the uh, Tomb of the Cybermen. Now. I did listen to the audio books of... Don't panic, I didn't use the audio books for this one, but I did go back and listen to the audio books of Temple and the Moonbase a while ago. And, you know, when th- those adaptions by Jerry Davis, um, they were great, but he did seem to focus quite a bit on Polly's figure and legs quite a bit. Remember that? Yes. Particularly, I think, in the 10th planet where she comes down the ladder and all the base is sitting there like whistling at her and whatever. Um, you expect of a bunch of blokes who are yeah. straight blokes who well, are... Well, I mean, you, do, you do in the televised story, you do then get the long ones. You say, like, don't just stand there like a group of frustrated penguins. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, given all the uh, animated adaptions of all these Troughton stories, I think now the Highlanders has become the new forgotten Troughton, apart from the Space Pirates, which obviously is forgotten for a reason. And, um, you know, I remember we did go Every back... Every Doctor Who story is somebody's favourite story, Mark. Yeah. Anyway. And um, I remember when we did our horrible historical story uh, episode podcast. Remember that, Rob? It was a while ago we did that. And uh, we... Who are you again, Mark? I can't remember. Exactly. So I chose this to listen to the, the Highlanders uh, television soundtrack uh, at the time. It was an interesting subject. But really, apart from being Jamie's sort of first story and the last historical story, and I don't count Black Orchid as a historical, by the way. Set in the past? Relative no, to because it's not based on a historical event, is it, really? Okay. So basically, uh, I didn't get much out of it from a, uh, it's a, a soundtrack perspective. However, the book is actually, like you, Rob, a bit of a revelation. It's actually 126 pages, which is 40 pages less than what uh, you had to uh, deal with uh, Dave, but the, the the plot in this book actually really you know rattles along. Jerry Davis doesn't embellish the narrative too much, um, as what he did in the earlier adaptions. You know he did provide some extra details about some of the historical events happening at the time and the, and the character and the definition of the characters. Um, the writing style which he you know he presented in this book isn't too dissimilar from Uncle Terence. Um, there's also some nice comedic moments in there as well. Um, one thing that did strike me though was actually how little uh, Jamie actually features in this story. I was expecting him to have a bit more of a, a presence in the story, and really, Kirsty is actually at more the forefront of the book than um, than yes. Jamie is. Mm. And I'm going, well, why did they go with Jamie than Kirsty? But then again, well, it's probably more of another Katarina sort of situation. So, um, maybe prob- um, Fraser was a better drinking companion. As well, well, I think he was. Say. He was also a, 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 a friend of the producer as well, not sort of Jane T sort of style, but you know, he's a. He, yeah, he's a very what good friend. <laughs> but uh, anyway. But look, I was overly pleasantly surprised and how much I enjoyed reading this book again. After I read Donald Cotton's uh, The Romans, I'm going to go and seek out the uh, 78 adaption of Tomb of the Sidemen as well, because I haven't read that for about 30 that's, years. That's now. a good book. That's I, a very I good book, really yeah. So um, I thoroughly enjoyed The Highlanders. That's one that I do have memories of reading at about the age of 10 and, and, and thoroughly enjoying it. I'm fairly sure that I actually went from The Highlanders to reading Treasure Island and Kidnapped. Off, off the back of that because you know talking to my dad and saying oh I really enjoyed that book and he said well you know it's based on the works of Robert Louis Stevenson why don't you read Treasure Island why don't you read Kidnapped Mission Achieved from the point of view of the production team mm. and going and learning more about learning it, more about it yeah. um, and indeed speaking of that I can say that I visited the settings of three of the four books we've discussed here today I went to Culloden yes I've been to Culloden Paris Paris and Rome and, well there you go we've well, done it well there you go. there you go none of us have been to Tombstone though have uh, you been to Timstone? No, Timstone is a long way from anywhere. Okay. Yeah. Maybe when the, the, the uh, 
McDonald rolls out the virus uh, killer, you can uh, get on a plane and go. I've been to Jaffa though. That's well, I can say I've done the Crusades. Yeah. To the Jaffa cakes, I would hope. That's about it. Yeah, yeah. There you go. The ones at Aldi are quite good, actually. But, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're actually I'm not sure bad. everyone wants this to have it. <laughs> 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 I, I actually thought you were going to say Fraser was a pants man, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you're still alive. Well, you, you read his autobiography. Every second page, basically, he's got a new girlfriend. <laughs> and Fox Farms and Philly, I suppose it should be Farms, Phillies and Fornicating, because it's basically... <laughs> it's as good as uh, uh, Annika Will's every page. We make love. <laughs> oh, God. I met the painter. We made love. <laughs> uh, Pop down the shops for some bread. We oh, made love. <laughs> exactly what I mean. Let's talk about sex. And now, what you've been waiting for this entire year, we're now going to do... The annual 42 to Doomsday. Fan wank. For the three people who don't know what the segment is about, this is to um, celebrate and also berate some of the more interesting choices you'd uh, talk about uh, this year in terms of Doctor Who. It's where we sink the slipper in a big finish for about 20 minutes. <laughs> Come on, Richard. <laughs> this year, I reckon we might be a little bit more varied. I'm not. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. I've got a very long diatribe here of, of stuff, so who's going to start quickly? Richard, you, uh, you're you the first. Well, I thought I already threw my card, so look, I might as well uh, do it, Richard. Yeah. Go first. Come in off the long run, son. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, look, I'm sorry. I have gone for the easy target this year. And, uh, this slow moving, <laughs> moving. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just limping along. It's like the murka. <laughs> it's sort of limping along the base and dripping in and green paint. I have. Um, I did download some of Big Finish's Blake Seven stuff this year, and I yes. found them quite entertaining. And I thought they were very well put together, but mm. which also means I'm on their mailing list. Oh. And one of the items that they sent me was a new series of Third Doctor Adventures. Oh yes. Now, okay. now we might be a snap on this. Oh. Anyway, we'll now, look. when I looked at them, I really just thought, what is the point? It's Tim Trelaw, John Culshaw, Caroline John's daughter, and Elizabeth Sladen's daughter. Yes. In these stories, really? And yes. I just thought, who is this marketed at? Because, like, there is nothing here to hook you. Surely you could find one, one original cast member. Someone with a pulse. Well, Jeffrey Beavis is still alive. He played a soldier in Ambassadors of Death. Yeah, but I mean, you could get John Levine in for an afternoon or something. Kate Manning will do anything for Richard money. Franklin's still alive. He is. I really was just looking at that cast list and just thinking, really, what is the point? What are you aiming this at? Surely you would be better just to novelise this as a series of short stories or something and just put them out as prose. Yeah, I actually agree with you, Richard. This is actually on my list as well. This is the audio equivalent of the broom handle analogy, right? It is. Is it the same broom? You're swapping out the broom handle and, and, the, and the brush? You swap it out so many times, but is it the same broom? Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I just can't see what is the hook to get someone in to listen to this. Remember in the 80s, used to get, you know, those those albums, LP compilations, the same. It's the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> being re recorded by the LA Sound Machine. This is the equivalent. This is the LA Sound Machine equivalent here. Here and now. James Last plays your favourite tunes. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. seriously, and I know they have done it with some of their other works. Look, obviously, their, their Callan series, um, at least you can say that they're based on the short stories James Mitchell wrote. So, but obviously, no original cast there. Um, I know the Adam Adam and Live stuff is completely recast. And again, it's just sort of really why. Yeah. But yeah, so sorry, guys. I don't really get the rationale behind this one. I No, 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 no. You no. Do. You do. You do. <laughs> 
for loads of money. But in all seriousness, who would buy? I mean, it's like, well, people clearly do. Well, yeah. clearly they do. Is this the first series of this? That this is volume seven. So yeah. this is volume seven. This is this new box set they're talking about. It's actually yeah. volume seven. I mean, Tim Trelaw has come on in the last few years to play uh, the third mm. Doctor. So obviously there is a market there for this, but the I mean the question is 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 correct. What what do you, you want to listen to someone impersonating the brigadier and John Pertwee? Yeah, it, it's and it's trying to legitimize it by getting in by getting in the, the children, children, the children of right? that. That's, that's, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's the thing that really I I can't get around that they're just yeah. bringing their, their kids in. Yeah. To, I don't know to, to sell the concept is you know legitimize it. You know, that's what it's what. You know, it's what Liz would have wanted. Yeah. Um, did anyone ask her before she passed away? Uh, no, I doubt it. Well, you I mean, it's like, of the it's like the that Ed Levine thing when, you know, when they said they obviously had to stop the Sarah Jane adventures and he got in his diatribe about how they could get Katie Manning in and, you know, Sarah was doing a mission for the doctor or something, so Katie Manning was now looking after the kids. You know, and he ended it with, yeah, that, that's the way the series can continue and it's what Liz Sladen would have wanted. <laughs> what do you think of the concept, though, of bringing back... You know, impersonators and children of deceased actors. I think it's a bridge too far. Mm. I think that Big Finish did hit on a very clever way of doing some of these other eras probably ten years ago now where they did the Companion Chronicles. Yeah, exactly. where, where you exactly. get someone like you'd basically get someone like Maureen O'Brien who would tell a story about yes. her time or with the Doctor. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and it wasn't and so it was just that idea of let's explore that era but in in a different way that sort of is a bit of a, I think, a more respectful way to do it. Uh, this, as you said, I think that the broom analogy is very, very good. Like, at what point does this become a pale imitation? It's it sells clearly because they make them, and if it brings happiness, well, you know, whatever, that that's good. You know, congratulations to them. But no, it's not for me. It it has no allure whatsoever. I wouldn't even hate download it. Take download it. Hate download it. Yeah, it is. I agree. It is a bridge too far. It, it is. It's just uncomfortable for me. It's just uncomfortable. I, yeah. It's making money off people's nostalgia and willingness to spend anything with the Doctor Who logo slapped on it. Yes, I mean, I, and I remember asking a few years ago, what, what's Big Finish's um, business plan when all these actors pass away? Well, clearly it's this. It's getting the, the questions being answered. It's getting the kids. Yeah. Getting the kids involved. Davison's got two sons, actors. If yeah. people are willing to buy it and take and under the proviso or the understanding that this is what it is, all right, but. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So, what you do, what they do with Tom Baker, I think they've got well, two seasons worth of stuff, I think, in the can. Oh, yeah, okay. and then John, John, John Colshaw did. One of the writers, Paul Morris, was interviewed on the podcast uh, last month, and he says that they're ahead like 2024. 20, because I, I know Tom sort of made the joke about, you know, there's always the chance I'll be otherwise engaged. You could be the new one, Richard. They could bring you up and go. Colstrow is waiting in the wings for Tom Baker to pass away, isn't he? Surely. I don't think he's waiting anymore. He's out there doing anything he can. He's out there, yeah. He's doing chameleon as well. Not literally, but you know. There you go. Get the WD 40 out of Chronicles. Me, Neil. Mark, who's next? Dave. Thank you, Mark. So, my nominee for Fan Lake of the Year, I decided to Kobe Ashi Maru this one because I thought we can't all talk about Big Finish all the time as children. Um, oh. So, <laughs> and I actually, I actually wanted to kind of make the point that there is a place in the world for Fan Lake, and sometimes 
fan weight can actually be quite good. So Ooh. I'm going down the character options path Ooh. because Ooh. I, I discovered character uh. options this year. I think you know where this is going. I, I discovered character <laughs> options this year. I actually bought them as well. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I, I knew that they existed in the past. We've had a couple of friends who've been quite heavily invested in them. I didn't realise quite the extent to which they could release the same character. <laughs> 37 times but with a new hat and, and so well, but, that's what Dapple used to do with their Daleks but yeah, yeah I, I hadn't realised quite how far they went but look I did buy a few of the history of the Dalek sets and yep. they're very good sets and I'm, I've always wanted a nice couple of Daleks on the shelf and they're, they're over there nice yes. but, but some people may know where this is going uh Character Options has the license to all the Daleks that appeared in Doctor Who on TV, but not in the movies, and people have always wanted a movie Dalek. Somebody discovered that a movie Dalek was in literally 0.8 of a second of film in the chase, in the background. I have checked it, you can see it. But based on that 0.8 of a second appearance, they have now been able to release movie Daleks as the jungles of Mechanist Daleks. And, 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 and look, they're up on the shelf. I have bought them. They are absolutely lovely. They're they wonderful are. things. And as I say, Fanwake is not necessarily bad. No. And, and I'm very glad they were able to do this. But when you turn a few seconds, not even that, half a second of film into, well, this is a character from Doctor Who, that has surely got to be a nominee for Fanwake. And many boots of uh, Ford Escort cars have been loaded up at uh, local B&M stores across yep. the UK. Have you seen pictures of those loading up their boots mm. and cars well, with sets? Well, the, the, the UK version was certainly a limited edition and it yeah. sold out very, very quickly. Mm. Yeah, well, point out of a second then. Can't go wrong. No, absolutely. Very good. There's a positive outcome there. Oh, it's a positive it's outcome. As I said, family is not always bad. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Well, I'm sure Rob has got a different uh, lens on this. Imagine, <laughs> if you will. Hang on, hang on. We'll pour a drink and sit back. <laughs> He's putting his glasses on now. <laughs> if we're in trouble. If only better to see the sickness I'm about to describe. <laughs> Uh, imagine, if you will, a world in which a spin-off licence has been provided to a small press publisher in the UK, in which a certain character in an alternative universe is allowed full licence in their life. And imagine, if you will, an obscure wannabe writer in Australia <laughs> is approached and said, would you like to do this? And I said, yes. I give you, ladies and gentlemen, I, Alistair. No, oh, I'm yeah. only joking, of course. <laughs> Uh, available from all good bookstores and Amazon. <laughs> no, in actual fact, no, I'm only joking about that, of course. Very privileged to have written it and I love it. Um, there goes my nomination. The whole... <laughs> F you, mate. <laughs> the whole concept behind Time Lord Victoria. Oh! <laughs> That's a snap for me as well. I, and don't edit this, Mark, have no fucking idea what it's about. I do not know. All I know is... All I know is it's a multi-platform nightmare. Books, comics, audio, Eagle Moss figures for fuck's sake, video games, there's even an escape room experience. What's going on? (laughs) What's it about? What is it? I don't understand. I don't know what it is. I read up a little little synopsis about the the 8th, 9th and 10th Doctors going back to the earliest times of Gallifrey and saving it from something. But it's such a mishmash of of different, you know, uh, mediums. I don't know how anyone could possibly follow it from the beginning to the end. I think that there was some sort of 
flyer that went out or it something was, on the internet yeah, it was on the, that explained which where it, you go. It was actually on a billboard to yeah. try and work it out. Is it's it, like the Doctor Who equivalent of snakes and ladders. You look at this map and it's all over the shop. Is it a coherent, like a coherent, single coherent story? Or is it more like, know. say, like a, not, a, a universe where you can just dip in and out no, and I pick think, up I bits think where to, you... I think you have to pick up... Well, apart from the dolls, I mean, I don't know the dolls are built to the but um, yeah, I, yeah, it's on my list as I well. Don't know, I don't I, I, I assume that there's a through line from beginning to end, um, but it's... I don't know. I honestly don't know. It's a real puzzle. Yeah, it's you just, puzzle. just need another mortgage to pick it up, really. Yeah. You need a job. And, and, and that is one of the two problems that I had with it. Um, the, the, the second problem I had with it is what you just said there, Rob, in that if I need a roadmap book mm. to work out how to get into this product, I'm I'm not mm. interested in getting yeah. into it. Like, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what this thing is, and I inhabit Doctor Who Twitter and Facebook, and I see these things. Mm. I don't know exactly what this is and where I'm meant to start and what I'm meant to do, so I, I'm out. But before even that even started, if you wanted to write three words that were least likely to get me interested in a Doctor Who concept, Rip it song. would be... <laughs> It would be Time Lord Victorious, because I just thought that was the absolute idea of the RTD era. My Doctor is just a guy who goes around and has adventures. He is not a special saviour of the universe. He's not a god. He's not somebody who goes around being victorious. He just sort of muddles in and finds a way. That's what I want in Doctor Who. I do not need that. I do not need David Tennant at the end of his run. And look, I've got a lot of time for David Tennant. He had a lot of good stories. But by the end of that run where they were doing the Time Lord Victorious stuff, that was the least appealing stuff for his era. That is not something I'm interested in at all. Fair play to those who do, the big Tennant fans, whatever. That's great but sorry that is probably the least interesting thing you could do for me for Doctor And they've even managed to shoehorn apparently the Waters of Mars into it as as an example They've managed to shoehorn Planet the Daleks in and Curse of Fenric now unless they've gone back and got Trim Trelaw to aid the arse Time Lord Victorious and then get McCoy in to do some Time Lord Victorious saying in Curse of Fenric it is complete multi-tat extravaganza of this author so yeah, Time Lord Victorious. I mean, again, as with everything we've, we've said, if you're into it and you're, you're enjoying it, that's fantastic. And if you're, and you're probably not listening to us. No. <laughs> and if you're, if you're James Goss and you're coordinating all this and you've come up with a storyline and you're, you're managing it into the into reality, great. That's fantastic. You know, you're doing creative stuff and that's great. But it is the way it's been to me anyway, to, and us. It's the way it's been rolled out. Uh, and the expectations upon you know the, p- the potential experiencer of it—it's just a nightmare. I mean, they're releasing stories on vinyl. Are they releasing? I mean, not everybody's got a record player. I mean, how would you listen? If you haven't got a record player, how would you listen to those stories that are on vinyl? I mean, I don't understand it. It, it feels inaccessible. And and the one rule of fanwank is that if you're going to do it, you need to make it friendly and accessible. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's exactly it. There you go, TLV. What a nightmare. Mark. Oh dear. <laughs> I spent all year thinking about this because obviously I had a bit of time off here and there. So, um, Fanwake of the Year keeps you up at night, doesn't it? It does, actually. A lot of things keep me up at night, but this is the most that keeps me up at night. So, look, you know, sometimes this segment just focuses on the negatives of, fan- of fandom, um, and it's quite lazy to say it's always big finish, isn't it, Richard? So, look, I'm going to start with some uh, fan praise. You're going to get to them in a few minutes, are you? Or. In my own time, yes. But I'm going to start on what I'm going to call the Fan Glaze or Fan Praise Awards, first of all. But the first of all, the, the, the thing I really liked uh, this year from a fandom perspective was the Blackpool Remembered. 
um, publication that came out. It was a fan-made production, uh, primarily dealing with the history of the Blackpool exhibitions mm-hmm. and uh, the Longleat ones and the Clangochlin ones. And uh, reading this publication, which was free, no patron involved, uh, it brought back lots, lots of memories for me as a child visiting those exhibitions, the Blackpool one in particular, where I... Um, went down the stairs, lots of noise, I had to go by myself once and scared the crap out of my pants, uh, but it was very, very good, uh, great publication, very chunky and they keep making changes, there's, there's new information coming through, so they're making new additions, so that was really, really good. I'd like to also make a call out to uh, Millie McKenzie and her sculptors on Twitter. Uh, yeah, they're very good, they're she, very, she's very talented. Very, very talented, great caricatures. Um, really well represented um, and you know basically she could get on Twitter I've got a whole page here you get on Twitter and you make a suggestion and she'll go away and make it I have made a couple um, I'm waiting for my Bandul ambassador <laughs> and also my Bilal from Death of Daleks um, it's my birthday on the 27th of December so hopefully I might see one of them then we'll see what happens now on to the Fan Rank Awards. Awarding the, the this claim has been a disputed award not only to outgoing um, President McDonald J. Trump, but also to the fellow on Twitter who took his Blu-ray copy of Talons of Wen Chiang, right? <laughs> he put it on the ground, he was scraping it all over the place, he turned it upside down and the Blu-ray copy was completely scratched and he overlaid the text racist on it. Now, son, if you're gonna do that, you are a sad man. You are a sad man. If you're going to do that, at least do it on a DVD copy because the season 14 set's gone up in value. <laughs> you actually just stuffed yourself up. What a clown. Anyway. But he, but he would be promoting racism, Mark, if he sold it on clearly. He'd be so. profiting from racism. He'd be right. almost like slavery. It's it's right. like, come on. You know, just unbelievable. It's just... I couldn't believe it. Anyway, so you, sir, are a complete dick. I want to make also call out the Time Lord um, Victorious Multitat Extravaganza. Time Lord Confucius. Yeah, oh, it's just awful, isn't it, really? I mean, what can I say? As I said, you need a billboard and a bloody flowchart to work it out. It still doesn't make sense. Um, but it's a Doctor Who equivalent of Snakes and Ladders, that's all it is. Look, I've already mentioned the Big Finish Award. You, you've cut my lunch on that one, but you're right. It's, uh, it was an absolute disgrace. They produced thousands of plays over the years. Um, but the winner of my family of the year will go to that seventh volume of the Third Doctor Adventures, um, featuring the Third Doctor Brigadier uh, and Sarah Jane. Of course, there's a common theme there. Uh, they're all dead. Now, it's my pleasure. For the first time in seven years, I don't have any big finish entries as my number one. I'd like to bestow the honour of the uh, What Has Ma- Happened to the Magic of Doctor Who Award to the person who decided he needed to fix the brain of Morbius and turn the mystery of the Doctor into something as generic as some mid-90s US sci-fi slop that was served up. Featuring a 20 minutes exposition of the Doctor's origins by uh, the way of the latest actor to play the master like Beetlejuice, it was not only boring but bad television and a waste of the Earth's resources that were plundered in making it. Stephen Moffat broke the Doctor Who canon by uh, needlessly inserting a new Doctor that wasn't needed and didn't make sense, but Chris Chibnall has taken it one step further where the canon is now a broken inflatable sex doll, and despite all the leaking air, you just keep on rogering it and hoping that the open mouth expression will at some point start smiling. So Chris, please contact me with your award, son, because it's on the shelf ready to go. And hopefully with a slightly less uh, strangled expression than the uh, sex doll. So that is my winner of the year. 
And a very worthy one as well, let me say. Look, I I do not have hatred for the timeless child concept or the timeless children. As I've said before on, on the Doctor Who show a couple of times, my copy of the Aztecs and my copy of the Tenth Planet and my copy of Where We're Fear is not changed or diminished because Chibnall has gone and retrospectively created 40,000 years of Doctor Who canon before the show. It's not. I, I, I still love the series. I don't, I don't feel threatened by it mm. in, in a way that some did. I just thought it was a phenomenally dumb and boring idea. Yeah. And it goes back to what I said about Time Lord Victorious. To me, the Doctor is just this bloke from Gallifrey who just goes and has crazy random adventures. The idea of him being some sort of supernatural being or, or a saviour or a chosen one, that's just boring. It's dull. Yes. It's not what I want in the show. Look, but the sound of the TARDIS brings hope, Dave. <laughs> really turned me off. And the bit about, you know, you've seen entire armies crap their pants and run away as soon as the Doctor's name's mentioned. Um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't need that stuff. I don't like that stuff. Um, you know, I, I love that bit in The Nightmare of Eden where Tom's sitting there trying to fix this, fix it and, and the captain's just like, well, you know, what are you doing? Like, who are you? Oh, I'm just here having fun. That, that's that's just what I want from the Doctor. The Doctor arrives, something bad's happening, he fixes it, he has an adventure, they all go home, and everyone forgets him. That's that's Doctor Who to me. This is so far from that. I'm not threatened by it, I don't care, but I think it's dumb. I agree. At, uh, at Christmas time, there's only room for one saviour. Flash Gordon the Doctor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Your now, name is John McLean. Oh yes, it's certainly not like John Levine, is it? That's my Christmas movie. It is actually. Yeah, watch it again this year. You betcha. Now we had a contribution from Andy Taylor, not the uh, not the former guitarist from Duran Duran, who says, uh, "Great to have you guys back again. The funniest Doctor Who podcast out there, especially when one of you is off their tits." Obviously, talking about you, Rob. Which, considering um, you go for a very serious tone, actually says a lot. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, too. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, apart from the obvious big finish offerings, I'd say the whole Time Lord Victorious thing. Hey. Uh, it seems overly complicated and covering too many platforms. I can't be bothered with it all. Making past stories all part of it as well. Planet the Daleks, Genesis, Fenric, amongst others. Just seems ridiculous to me. I think they need to go back to a brand manager to oversee this stuff. Uh, if the Childless Child had been fan-pleasing, I might have nominated it. But apart from being utter shite, it's too divisive. So thank you, Andy, for that. So we're about to wrap up this episode of 42 to Doomsday, our Christmas episode, but we have one letter. Only Richard. One. Well, it's the only one I could find very quickly. Richard, would you like to uh, please read it out? Okay, this is from Scott Michelson. Thanks for writing in, Scott. Uh, who says, I'm loving the What If series. It's fantastic notion of having an old and future next Doctor in Trial was a great idea and something that could have worked very well. Having said that, Trial is my most rewatched season so I'm happy as it stands, even if it's not perfect. Question. You put up links to the previous Doctor theme podcast you've done, but I couldn't see a Tom Baker era one. Has there been one already, or is this planned for the future? Yes, there is a bit of a Tom Baker gap in our retrospectives. We'll deal with that, I think. The problem with doing Tom Baker, and I know, Richard, we found this when we were running the local club during the 50th anniversary and we're, we're doing our various era, era retrospectives, is first of all, what's left to say about the Tom mm, Baker era? Yeah. And the second thing is, once you've done the Tom Baker era, 
you've done it and it's, it's such a big deal that you kind of want to save until you're really sure you want to do it that's exactly it and I think if we were going to do it we'd have to do it a different way we're really not just talking about the stories because as you said it's been covered so many times we, we have to think of a way of addressing it which we will at some point so boys thank you very much for uh, participating yet again Rob uh, thank you this, again for this year I can't even remember how many episodes we've done this seems probably less than normal you'd think for lockdown we would have done one a week but clearly we didn't <laughs> say <it. laughs> no 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 no. we're too busy watching episodes but um, thank so you Rob have you had the 42 to Doomsday Investors Day and previewed what's coming over the next year <laughs> that's a very good question Dave thank you for segueing that uh, no, we haven't had our like, we haven't had our time there to plan up this year. But uh, we've just discussed where you and Dave and Rob will be doing their uh, last part. Well, hopefully not last part. Their uh, look at Doctor Who in terms of a follow-up to the religion and politics episode. We're looking at one on the military. On the place. military, yes, we'll be doing that at some point. Um, You've got the biggest cheesel on the side of your mouth, Mark. Would <laughs> <laughs> you like the boss to eat it? <laughs> no, you're my sex tape. Oh, look, we'll, we'll be doing some stuff during the year, I'm sure. Come back next year, we might do some stuff. <laughs> uh, we've got some, yeah, we've got, we've got some stuff lined up. Just a podcast just out there having random adventures. Exactly. You guys aren't special. <laughs> you guys aren't deities. You guys aren't the chosen ones. <laughs> you just rock up and have an adventure, and that's what we love. That's exactly right. Just having fun. <laughs> that's right. Just so, having fun. So, so, in a relatively bleak and grim year, I hope that uh, the, the, the episodes, the few episodes we pumped out, uh, have been entertaining to uh, you know to our listeners. And thanks for hanging around. Um, so we all, you know, Mark and I obviously wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, even those who are non-believer heretics who are going straight to hell when they die. <laughs> um, hopefully not COVID, of course. So, uh, on behalf of Mark and myself, Merry Christmas to everyone. Richard and Dave, thank you again for coming on. Merry yeah. Christmas to you. It's and always. We'll get you guys on uh, before Christmas next year, don't you worry about that. Yes. That's right. I, um, I hope you're all going to accept our invitation to appear on the January Doctor Who show in return. Oh, well. oh yes, we will do that right. Very shortly. About five minutes time. <laughs> five minutes time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a quick toilet break and then we'll get back into it. So, yes. But thank you very much, guys. No, uh, always a pleasure. Always happy to be involved. Thank you very much. And, and uh, uh, while you're chewing on your uh, roast Timmy, keep punching! You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon. We're broadcasting almost live with from our sunny retreat next to a dildo shop as hair dye drips down our faces to help you celebrate Christmas as you contemplate shoving little Timmy. He's gone. Three, two, one. In the oven in lieu of roast pork. Buckle up. I don't want to start again. Oh. <laughs> with a little Timmy bit because you're going to. Three, two, one.